The following tape is Dr. Carla Turner talking on the UFO and alien masquerade, what's really going on. Sunday, May 7, 1995, at the Quality Resort in Mission Valley. Uh, before I begin, I really have to thank Sean Atlanty and several of the gangs who have made this possible for me to come out to California. I've spoken in many, many parts of the country, but this is my first time to be in California, and I'm thrilled to be here. I've, I've been treated like a, a like queen. I, I can't recommend enough that if you're not involved with Sean's group or one of the groups in the area, that you consider getting involved and becoming an activist in this field. This is not a field for hobbyists. And certainly, uh, people with energy, with expertise, and with some time to devote to this, you've got a local organization where you can put those skills and abilities to some good use. And I very much appreciate it, Sean. May I ask before I begin uh, for a show of hands of if there's anyone here who knows absolutely nothing about the abduction aspect of the UFO phenomenon? Oh, that's great. Then we don't have to go through a primer to bring everybody up to speed. I can just plunge on into the material, but I wouldn't want to leave somebody behind if this was their very first exposure to what I consider the most important part of the entire UFO phenomenon. Um, we won't have to catch up. We're just going to plunge into some aspects of this, as Sean mentioned, that many, many researchers are reluctant to deal with, to talk about, or to write about, and yet in my opinion, where we're going to find the most fertile ground for information is in those areas where the anomalies and the patterns are broken, where we find the disturbing details of, an, of a phenomenon. For many people, this phenomenon seems to be a very spiritual experience, a very uplifting experience, very positive. And I applaud all of the work that's been done so far in the field to bring those cases to your attention. However, that's not the whole picture. And I've considered it my job as both an abductee myself and a researcher into the field to try to balance the, the picture for the public and to talk about those aspects that are not so pleasant and not so uplifting because, in essence, we don't have to worry about our friends. But we had better be concerned about those who are not our friends. And therefore, when I talk tonight or today, and I talk about aliens, I'm talking about abductors, not any other group or agency or entities that may be interacting with us. I'm talking about those who abduct. So please don't take what I have to say as a blanket statement about all the possible entities that we may be interacting with. <clears throat> I'm going to begin with a little joke, if you don't mind. Three ufologists start on a bus traveling together to a UFO conference. And, um, of course, if, if this were about any other profession than ufologists, they'd be on a plane because they'd have money. <laughs> but they're on a bus. And they're traveling along, and at one of the stops, a new passenger gets on the bus and sit, takes a seat next to the ufologist, and they begin talking. And they're talking all about their studies and their theories and their sightings and so on, and the passenger who knows something about this is very intrigued. And while they're talking, a gigantic UFO zooms out of the sky, flies up next to the bus, hovers there long enough that the passengers can look out and see in the portholes of the UFO some bipedal figures in there very dimly, and then the UFO takes off. 
And the, the new passenger says, wow, you know, what was that? Who were those people inside there? Oh, those were our space brethren, the first ufologist says. Um, they're just here to make contact and say hello and make sure we're okay. And the passenger says, gee, you know, that's wonderful. No, 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 the second ufologist says, those aren't our friends. Says, those are uh, those are those those evil intruding abducting aliens who are just here scouting for more humans to abduct and terrorize and do terrible experiments on. And the passenger says, gee, that's awful. And the third ufologist says, you're both wrong. They're neither friend nor foe. They're just simply here making scientific investigations, and they value us as laboratory specimens, but they're not malevolent or angelic. And the passenger says, gee, I guess you professionals don't know anything either. <laughs> Which is not a funny joke, I admit it. But the situation is neither a funny situation. If you're familiar with the UFO research for the past 50 years, you know that there have been some of the best minds in the world in all different professional professions who have devoted energy and time and their expertise to pursuing every angle of the UFO phenomenon. For 50 years, we've had experts and scientists measuring uh, trajectories of flights of, of unidentified craft, examining landing traces and artifacts, doing analysis on the photos and the radar, and every single test that could be run from a scientific point of view has been pursued in this field for 50 years. And yet today, half a century later, we don't have a single reliable answer to the basic questions, who are they? Where do they come from and why are they here? Which tells us something about the scientific approach. It also tells us something about the nature of this phenomenon. So far, in fact, all we've really done is come up with a lot of complex theories and a lot of labels for a phenomenon that we don't clearly understand. We have labels ranging on the one side, one extreme, to our wonderful space brothers here to save us, all the way to the invading aliens here to use us, and every level in between. And we still have the same questions we started with. Are they friendly? Are they angelic? Are they demonic? Are they curious? Are they aggressive? What are they? The fact is that the nature of these entities and their intentions is the big question. All the other questions are secondary to that, in my opinion. Because without an understanding of who they are and what they want, we humans have no idea of what proper response we should be making. I think we can agree on that. When we act in ignorance, we do not know if we're acting properly or not. So why is it that after all this time, we still disagree so radically about the nature of the, of the UFO phenomena and the occupants of these craft? Why is that? And in my opinion, it is because after half a century, we are still ignorant of the very basics of the field. And why are we ignorant? Why do we know no more than we know already at this point? And I'm here to tell you from my research and my own experiences that I believe we are still in a state of ignorance because the entities deliberately deceive us in their interactions with us. This is the number one fact that's emerged from my research in this field. And if I'm able to only leave you with that one message, that we are being deceived in many ways by these interactions, then I'm going to be happy with my work today. 
because of this essential deception, especially when it comes to human-alien contact and interaction, the cold hard truth is that abductees and contactees report alien-controlled information when they report about their conscious memory, and often even when they report what they retrieve through hypnotic regression work. There is no such thing as face value when it comes to the non-human entities that are interacting with us here. And that's a cherished notion that's hard for people to give up. I know it was hard for me once I was aware of what was going on with my family. But the research has left me no choice. And I'm going to share some of the findings with you here that have led me to this state, to this position. I doubt that many of you know who I am or know anything about my experiences, and I will give you a very, very brief background on, on why I'm standing here today. In December of 1987, I was a college instructor of English, living in Denton, Texas, north of the Dallas-Fort Worth area. My husband was a very successful computer consultant with his own business in the area. My one child, a son, was finishing up his bachelor's in physics and beginning to play, making plans to start his master's degree program in physics. And we had a very wonderful life, a very normal life, a very happy and fulfilled life, in fact. But a daytime sighting of a UFO hanging motionless over the courthouse in the town where we lived, sighted by my husband, totally shattered that world that we had built and were enjoying so much. It led to investigating and understanding that there had been contacts and abductions in both my husband's life and my life since we were children. It led to finding out that, at least in my husband's family, the abduction phenomena had been going on for four generations. It led to finding out that not only had we had encounters in our past, but that we were having them once again, beginning with a vengeance with this December 1987 sighting, which was also an abduction event. And I began as a researcher because a, PH, a person with a PhD is really only trying to do one thing, and that's research. And when we realized that this was real and it was happening to our family, I began to research it. I thought if I read the right books and ask the right questions, I'll find an answer and explanation for this. And I delved into it just like I did into my PhD work, read and, and absorbed everything I could, and found there were no answers. Theories, yes. Answers, no. And it became then a goal to try to find some answers, at least for my family. <clears throat> the story of the events and the discoveries of the first year and a half of us living with and dealing with the, these experiences was, uh, I kept a journal of these events, and that eventually resulted in a book called Into the Fringe, which was published in paperback in 1992 by Berkeley. And it accounts, recounts everything that my husband and I experienced, as well as my son and his fiance, who's now his wife, and his roommate, and his roommate's family, and two of our friends. So the phenomenon was, as I have found out since then, typically a cluster of events within a group. Now, we were totally ignorant of this phenomenon. In fact, when my husband cited the UFO and told me about it, 
we never mentioned the word UFO. We thought it might have, he knew it wasn't a weather balloon because he walked up the hill from our house to observe it. He knew it wasn't a hot air balloon. He knew it wasn't anything he could identify. And we finally decided it must be a movie prop. Never thought UFOs. So we did not come with any preconceptions or with any previous information into having to deal with this phenomenon. By 1991, I could no longer <clears throat> both pursue my teaching career and the research, and a choice had to be made, and you can see what went out. I was fortunate enough to have worked with a woman named Barbara Barthlick in Oklahoma, who, in my opinion, has more information about the abduction phenomena than all the rest of us researchers rolled into one. Unfortunately, Barbara is so committed to working with the abductees that she doesn't have time to write or to lecture or to travel because she's doing it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and has been involved in this for 15 years. I was lucky enough to have her help my family go through our initial coping with this and then to become her student, as it were, and to have learned from the years of her work and to be involved in her investigation. And it was a wonderful education. That's the PhD I think I value most of all. Barbara has worked with over 600 cases in the past 15 years, and I have gathered a lot of information from her work. When I began to work on research in my own area independently and in conjunction with her very often, then I began also to find correlations in the cases that were being investigated from people who came to me. And the correlations of this information did not jive with what we found in most of the literature about this subject. We found, in fact, that what was being reported publicly in the journals and in the speeches and in the books was highly censored, very partial, and very much expressed either the wishes are the fears, are the biases of the researchers who, for the most part, had not had experiences themselves. When I began to talk with the individuals from whom these researchers were taking their material, I found to my surprise that no matter what the researchers' bent was, the cases themselves were pretty much consistent and much more complex that any of the literature up to that point had ever expressed. The reports on the investigations I've been doing in the last four years are available now in two books that my husband and I have published ourselves so that we could have total control over the material rather than as Berkeley had done with my first book. And the first of those publications is a book called Taken, Inside the Alien-Human Abduction Agenda. And my purpose was to have the reader, give the reader an access to the inside experience, to be in it. What is it like to be in the abduction phenomenon? I chose for this particular study the cases of eight different women from various places in the country, from Puerto Rico and New York and Florida to Alabama and Tennessee and Texas. None of these women knew each other when the study began and they did not have contact with each other until the study was finished. I've correlated their reports, and i not only given, giving them lengthy uh, chapters in which they could give first-hand accounts rather than me telling you what they experienced. I've let them tell you what they experienced. I've also provided uh, a comprehensive chart correlating over a hundred different details from their reports so that you can see what is consistent 
what kinds of things are happening to many, many people. And although these accounts are frankly astounding, I assure you they're representative of what many, many people who you'll never hear about and probably I will never hear about are experiencing. Because for every abductee whose case you have heard reported, there must be anywhere from 50 to 100 who never talk, at least publicly. I have so many reports on a private and confidential basis that I can share some data from, but I cannot tell you who these people are, and they will not come forward themselves. It is too difficult for most people to do this. There are more liabilities to coming forward and going public than there are ever assets. The second book that reports on research in, is called Masquerade of Angels, and it is the story of one man's lifelong experiences. This is a man named Ted Rice. I doubt that any of you will have heard of Ted, but throughout the South, he's a very well-known psychic. He had been trained from his early adulthood in metaphysical work, he was a co-founder of the First Congregation of Spiritualist Church in the state of Georgia. He's an Alabama boy. He says he's a cotton patch kid raised on a farm. And he had a number of paranormal experiences throughout his life that had, of course, prompted him into this work. But that's not why I began my investigation with Ted. In 1989, Ted consciously remembered having been abducted by entities he had never seen before, taken from his home, along with many of his neighbors down the street, taken to a large craft. And when the craft began to move, Ted passed out. The story is sort of funny, actually. Ted had, was very familiar with spirit guides in his work doing psychic readings. And throughout the years, he had gotten communications and help and assistance from a number of what he thought of as spirit guides. Until in 1989, the spirit guides began acting a little strange. In fact, they begin coming in the middle of the night and touching him and doing things with him and telling him things that he couldn't remember the next morning. And the spirit guides had never done this. And they came night after night after night to the point where Ted was getting no rest at all. I mean, he was going downhill physically. He was going downhill emotionally. And he was, in fact, reaching a point of almost nervous breakdown from constantly having these intrusions at night. And he even moved to change locations, thinking maybe if he got away from the area, this, this interference would stop. And it's after he, he had a trailer at that time, because he would, in his job he moved around a lot. He says he has a house and, and isn't in the trailer anymore. But he was in a nice trailer park in Shreveport, Louisiana, when he had moved from one location to another location, had just set his trailer up to four days to do this, because he worked during the day, and thought he was now away from whatever this was that was bothering him. <coughs> And the very first night after that, he had gotten settled in and a friend was there helping him. Here came what was by now a very familiar sight, a little blue light floating into his house. He had never had these little blue lights before this time in his life, and he didn't understand what they had to do with his spiritual work. But he saw it coming in again, and he knew he was, the move had done no good. He was still going to have this phenomenon at night, and he lost his temper. I mean, he was ragged already from lack of rest. And he yelled and he shouted and he cussed. You know, in the South, we do like to cuss. And he cussed this thing out and he said, you spirit guides better leave me alone. How in the heck, I'm cleaning up the language, how in the heck do you expect me to do my psychic work when you won't let me get any rest? 
He says, I'm on the edge. I'm about to break down. He said, for God's sake, give me some rest. Go pick on the neighbors for a change and leave me alone. And that's when they abducted him along with many of his neighbors, gathered them on the craft and said, in effect, is this satisfactory? Is this what you had in mind? It was Ted's UFO abduction that brought us together because he didn't know what this was and he knew it was not a spirit, guys. And he actually placed an ad in a newspaper asking for help. And that's how we made the contact and began to investigate his case. And it's one of the most extraordinary cases and most thoroughly investigated cases that I know of. And, the, and in fact, the research is ongoing. We did not intend to publish a book until we had really completed the investigation. But as it turned out, there was so much to investigate and so much yet still to investigate that we reached a point last year where we said, look, what we've learned already is so crucial and so important. Let's go ahead and publish our findings at this point, and then in a couple of years when we've gotten the rest of the investigation done, we'll, we'll finish the project. So I'm warning you now, if you happen to be uh, interested in reading Masquerade of Angels, it is book one. And what we're going to do in book two is to look into many of the incidents reported in book one that were not investigated, they were consciously recalled only. And, and we've already done some work in that area, and frankly, it is extraordinary what we've turned up. If the material we had found in Ted's case was only found in Ted's case, then I wouldn't have anything to really be telling you. But as I said, I have been privy to other researchers' work in great numbers, and also the cases that I have explored, and this is not unique material. It's simply material most of you don't hear about. So I hope to share some of the highlights of the findings and from the case reports I have worked on in both these books tonight to illustrate just a few points for you. Here's what I'm going to be discussing, and I will use this, this material as illustration for it. I'm going to talk about the cases that deal with the deceptive nature of the phenomenon. I'm going to talk about two of the physical procedures involved in this, two that I think are the most disturbing and most crucial to, for our understanding. And I'm also going to talk about, as Sean mentioned, the evidence of the interest and involvement of some very human agency that is clearly authorized and funded and supported at the very highest levels of our governmental authority with the Excuse me. All right, first we're going to talk about the deceptions. Now, whether we like to call it screen memory, telepathic transfer, technological mind control, or virtual reality, the abducting entities employ what are clearly masterful illusionary capabilities. In effect, the targeted human is totally taken in for the most part by these illusions. Totally taken in. And so an experience or a contact feels completely real for the targeted person, even though, as we find often in these investigations, the events and the entities and the sensations did not occur in the way the human perceived them and remembered them. And maybe a few examples from Masquerade and, and later from Taken will show you what I'm talking about. And I'm going to start with one that I think is, is a very poignant story from Ted's situation. Ted was abducted along with his grandmother when he was 10 years old from their Alabama farm. 
among many other things that occurred during the abduction, and, and as I said, I'm not going to, I'm only touching on highlights. There is much more to each of these accounts than I have time to share with you today, but the thing I want to share about the, the deception is this. Among the things that were done was an event in which Ted and his grandmother were given a liquid to drink. And quite clearly, this liquid acted as an aphrodisiac. And there were both human-looking entities in this craft, as well as what seemed to have been reptilian or reptoid-type entities as well. And after giving these drinks to both Ted and his grandmother, the reptoid entities approached the grandmother and were beginning to try to initiate a sexual act with her. And this is a woman who was an Alabama cotton farming housewife with strength that I only wish I had. This is not somebody you mess around with. And she said, no, sir, I don't do that. She said, I never had sex with anyone but my husband, and he's been dead for six years, so I don't do that. And the entity left the room, and a few minutes later returned with her dead husband. And by then, the, the drink that they had been given had taken strong effect. She was aroused. She saw her husband, and with... The viewing of these entities around her began to have intercourse with this dead husband. In the midst of the act, however, the illusion was removed and she saw who it was she was having sex with, and it was not the dead husband. Now that's how strong some of the deceptive screening or mind control or virtual reality techniques can work, and that's not an isolated case, it's just one illustration. Now, a second instance uh, that's probably the most educational for my purposes because it allowed me to learn about actual technology that creates virtual reality for the targeted human uh, was an instance that was witnessed by two unaffected human witnesses. Ted, as I said, was trained in spiritualist work, and the woman that had trained him, his mentor, had moved to Florida and... Um, in 1992, Ted was invited to go visit her, and she had also invited another friend, a woman named Amelia, to visit the same weekend. And after they'd gone to bed one night, Ted had gone to the guest room to go to bed, and Amelia and Marie, the woman who had invited them, were in twin beds in a second bedroom and had just laid down. A couple of minutes after lying down, Amelia, the visiting friend, suddenly said, What the heck is a helicopter doing over the house at this time of night? And Marie said, what helicopter? And he said, my gosh, you can't already have fallen asleep and, and been dreaming, can you? There's no helicopter. And Amelia said, don't you hear that helicopter? And lying down, Amelia started to rise up. And as she started to rise up, her entire bed was enveloped in a sphere of blue light or blue energy that totally or surrounded the bed with Amelia in it. And Amelia was paralyzed in this partially raised position. She was in the process of sitting up. She could still talk, but Marie, outside of the, this sphere of light, could barely hear her. They were in a small bedroom together. They had to shout to hear each other. Marie was totally blown away and began screaming for Ted to come quickly. And Ted got up out of the bed. He heard her shouting. He didn't know what was going on, and he ran down the hallway. And as he approached the bedroom, he could see the glow of this blue light coming out of the open door. And when he walked in the room, he saw Amelia in the bed, surrounded by this sphere of light, and Marie was up against the farthest wall, as far away from the bed as she could get. He said, press flat, just 
you know, eyes wide, mouth wide, and she told him what had happened up to that point about the sound of the helicopter and about Amelia saying that after hearing the helicopter, she could suddenly see through the ceiling up into the night sky where there was a strange craft, not a copter, but a strange craft hovering over the house. And she was describing this as it went on to Amelia, to Marie, who could not see this at all, and told her not only was there a craft over the house, but there were two alien entities inside the, the craft. Now you have to remember, Amelia had never had an experience that she thought of as UFO related. In fact, when Ted told her about his abduction in 1989, earlier that weekend, she laughed and said, that's National uh, Enquirer crap. You're not listening to that, are you? There's nothing to that. So here is Amelia now who scoffed at the idea, looking up, seeing a crash she can't identify with two alien entities in it. She said one of them looked like an alligator man. She had no terminology for this. And the other one was sort of purplish black and had a very bumpy surface to, uh, Skin. And she's carrying on a conversation with these entities, and then all of a sudden, after Ted is in the room for a few minutes, she said, well, now they're in here, they've come down in the room. And she began talking to the foot of her bed. She said, they're standing at the foot of the bed. Don't you see them? Don't you see them? This went on for, from beginning to end for upwards of 10 minutes before the light suddenly disappeared. And Amelia was able to rise up out of the bed and excitedly talk about, you know, did you see the entities? Did you hear what they were saying? Ted and Marie, who were not within the sphere of this energy field, saw nothing but the sphere of energy. Amelia felt absolutely certain that everything she saw and witnessed and did occurred. And if there had been no witnesses, she would have claimed she had had an alien encounter and had seen a craft. No one heard the helicopter but Amelia. No one saw the crash but Amelia. And no one saw the entity but Amelia. Clearly, a technological event had occurred. Had it been merely psychological, there would not have been the energy field around the dead. This was my first exposure to what was clearly a virtual reality technology. It was not my last, however. In fact, when Ted was staying up at my house, I live in the woods in Arkansas, and Ted lives in Louisiana. When Ted had come up for several days so that we could work on our investigation and do some interviews and, uh, and get a, good, a very confident hypnotist to do regression work with him because I don't do that, um, one night staying in our guest room, uh, we had a very pleasant night. We'd said goodnight and gone to bed, and my husband and I slept wonderfully. We have two chihuahuas that live in the house, very yappy dogs, if any of you know about chihuahuas. And they were well-trained to respond to helicopters because back when we had begun having our own alien encounter events, we had been living in a house in a, in a very dense neighborhood for five years and not once had we had helicopter activity over that house until we got on the phone and started talking to ufologists about our encounters. At that point, the helicopters became a very frequent occurrence, day and night so low over the house that windows cracked from the, the, the vibrations of the craft. As many as nine a day circling the neighborhood, circling the house over and over, and we never were able to identify them. However, my dogs saw me get excited every time the helicopters would come. I'd get my camera and I'd run outside and they would yap, 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 and became trained that every time they hear a helicopter, they erupt in this barking. The dogs didn't bark that night. 
We heard nothing that night, but the next morning Ted said, well, did you hear the helicopter? <clears throat> he said, no, Ted, no helicopters last night. And he said, oh, yeah. He said, I, I was waked up by the sound of helicopter blades, not the engines, but the blades, the whirring of the blades. And he said, I sat up on the side of the bed. I thought, oh, no, here comes one of those helicopters. And he said, I sat there and watched as a man in army fatigue came down through the ceiling carrying a young child. And he said, I swear to God, that child was identical to who I was at that age. And I said, what happened? And he said, the, uh, the soldier made one statement. He said, we are returning that which was taken from you. Now, I'd have to get into an entire different thing longer story to tell you what was returned to him five days later back in Louisiana, which had actually been taken from him in childhood. But the fact of the matter is, the sound of the helicopter was heard only by Ted. It was followed by an event, and clearly there was not a soldier melting through the roof into the room carrying young Ted. It was a virtual reality event that was totally real to Ted's perception. Before you jump to the conclusion that it was a terrestrial helicopter, remember it was only heard by the targeted person in these cases and in other cases that are very, very similar. So the fact that the sound is selective leaves us with two possibilities. Either these sounds are occurring internally in the if targeted person's head, perhaps generated by some remote means or perhaps by an implant device, or whoever the entities are that are making this sound can somehow block any non-targeted individuals from hearing an external noise. Now, either way, you've got advanced, sophisticated, highly sophisticated technology at work here. No matter whose it is, it is not what we know to be the standard helicopter activity. For me, the reported and, and very often confirmed details in these and other instances are strong enough evidence for me that I cannot accept anymore even my own consciously recalled experiences at face value. And I think if we build our theories upon, upon such information that really we're building upon sand that can shift at any time from beneath us, and we're building them on illusions that the entities create for us, for their purposes whatever those purposes may be. Now, I'm not here to tell you that all remembered or perceived alien encounters are illusionary or virtual reality, however, because I know that is not the case. There is plenty of good, hard, strong, externally confirmed evidence that actual physical abductions occur and occur frequently. <coughs> the abduction phenomena, though, in my mind should, or at least the definition of it, should be expanded to include not only the physical, face-to-face -face encounters. But it should also include virtual reality scenarios and telepathic contact when these things are externally generated and targeted at an individual. And the constant factor, by the way, in all of these events, whether they be physical, virtual reality, or telepathic, is this. The entities routinely take control of the human in a number of ways. They take control of the person's perceptions. They take control of the person's emotions. They take control of the person's actions and also the person's subsequent memories. 
no matter what kind of contact, as a rule, as a rule, but not always. The human cannot react freely, cannot react independently, and therefore cannot accurately assess the situation through sensory input, and cannot internally respond in a normal fashion as he would to any other incident. So we're left with another basic fact of the abduction phenomenon is that the entities are in control and exert that control, alter our state of consciousness, and the control can extend to a number of different processes within the person's physiology and psychology. And that brings me to the second point I want to talk about, which is one of the physical procedures that are repeatedly reported in the abduction phenomena. Uh, I need to say as a preface to that, that it is a basic fact in my mind, a fact, not a theory, that the entities have a very physically oriented agenda in their dealing with humans. Now, it would be wonderful for me, and I know it would be wonderful for all of us, if we could feel that the alien's interest in us was intellectual or spiritual only. But the nature of many of their pervasive physical procedures points clearly to physical goals. And without getting into a litany of the procedures that are reported routinely that seem to have little or nothing to do with either a spiritual agenda or a crossbreeding program, I want to touch upon two of these because their implications to me are much more important than any of the other procedures involved in this phenomenon. And the first of those is cloning. Is there anyone here who has heard of reports about cloned human bodies? Anybody at all? Great. Okay, so this is not just the first time you've heard this material. And I was fortunate enough last month to share some time with Linda Howe uh, at the Ozark Conference where she speaks every year and where I frequently speak. And she has confirmed from her own work similar material to what I'm going to share with you today. So some of you probably know Linda Howe where you don't know me and, and I can say I've got at least a little bit of authority in my corner on this. Again, to, to talk about my introduction to the cloning side of this, this material emerged from the work I did with Ted Rice the first time. And since then, it, that there have been plenty of other cases where I've been able to corroborate similar reports. In fact, in Taken, two of the women of the eight whose stories are in Taken have been shown copies of their bodies, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. In Ted's case, we learned what he perceived as a cloning experience from an abduction he had when he was eight years old on the Alabama farm. Now, I've been able in my research with him to interview many, many family members who were there at the time that Ted was abducted. It is a fact that he was missing for two hours. It is a fact that all of the adults combed the area for that two hours searching for eight-year-old Ted and did not find him. It is a fact that when he was returned to the farm, the adult members witnessed multicolored lights on an unidentified craft in the clouds over the house. These things are confirmed. And I'll tell you a couple of other things that are confirmed in just a moment. What he remembered in this experience was being taken on board the craft, being given another liquid to drink, not like the one he had two years later with his grandmother, 
a greenish liquid, he said, that was sort of iridescent, and when he swallowed it, in fact, the only reason he drank it was because the female entity said that he could not go home until he did this, and he wanted to go home very badly. So he drank this liquid and immediately felt as if his body had become on fire. He regurgitated this material and got very, very sick. He was placed on a table, and without going into all the details that I do in the book, essentially he was killed. And at that point, he felt that his intellectual person, if you will, separated from his physical body and stood back watching as his body was drained of blood and then removed from the room. While he was watching this, Ted had no personal identity. He did not know who he was. He did not know where he was. And he did not know what was going on. He was simply observing what was happening. Before he was killed, they had, however, put a headphone-type device on his head, and he heard a very irritating noise. He didn't know what that was about. He took the headphone off, and then he was killed. As his intellectual self, as he called it, watched this process, after they wheeled the dead body out, shortly thereafter, they rolled in an inert, identical copy of the body. Now, I did leave one thing out that's very important. When they killed him, and he's watching what happened, he said he saw what he thought was his spirit or soul begin to rise up from the chest area of the dead body, rising up. But it didn't escape from his body. It stayed connected to that greenish liquid that he had vomited and was still on his chest. It stayed tethered to this. One of the entities brought a small black box over to his body and sucked that spirit into the box, set it on a counter, and waited while they brought the new body out. Probes of some sort were attached to Ted's feet and shoulders and head of the new body, and it, somehow the body was animated, and the spirit or energy within that box was transferred into the new body. The headphones were placed back on the new body and at that point, Ted was back in his body and knew who he was and where he was. This is Ted's report. This is not the only report. In fact, another abductee uh, who's working with a different researcher altogether has had a conscious memory of an identical situation and has drawn the facilities in which these events took place and they match down to the smallest detail with the description of the area that Ted has given. And this is one of the things that Linda Howe was able to also share and confirm with me, that in both of these situations, both of these reports, the growth medium for the flesh that was used to make the new bodies involved the use of cattle substances, blood and other materials from cattle. Now, I said that two of the women in Taken had also been shown copies of their cloned bodies. There are eight women, and the first case reported is a woman named Pat, who I'm going to also talk about in a moment after the break when we talk about the military aspects. Uh, many, many things have happened in Pat's life, and in her abduction experiences, the aliens have always used a very spiritual 
atmosphere overlay or illusion, if you will. In fact, when her whole family was abducted, when Pat was 12 years old, and, and the grandmother in the house was being very frightened and beginning to pray for Jesus to help her as these little braids came into the room, all of a sudden a beam of light came through the ceiling and Jesus pops out and says, in effect, they're with me. They're working for me. It's okay. Although Jesus, as, as Pat described him, was beautiful with blue eyes and blonde hair. And I said, Pat, have you read your Bible lately? That I don't think the chances were very big that Jesus was blue-eyed and blonde hair. And with a smile, I mean, a beautiful smile, she said, well, this one was. And that turns up time and time again when Jesus is involved in the alien scenario. Blue-eyed, blonde-haired, Nordic Jesus. she was abducted and she re and two different parts of the facility uh, were the setting for these two events in the first one there was a small desk like device that had an attached stool and on the top of the desk were holes several holes cut into it and out of each one a different color light was shining and Pat was told to take her seat at this on the stool attached to this desk and the alien entity told her to place her hand over each of these openings and as she did so, she would hear a different sound. She said it wasn't quite music, it wasn't quite noise. It was sounds and like she had ever heard. And each light gave a different sound, and the alien told her that is the sound of your soul. Then she was taken into an adjoining room where there were open containers. She said like a sarcophagus with the lid off. A number of these, and in each one was an inert human body. And the alien said, would you like to see yours? Pat said yes. And they showed her a carbon copy of her body. And she asked what this was for. And, and remember, with her, she does not like it all. And she tries very, very hard to resist and to argue with him and to fight back against some of the procedures. So Pat, uh, Lisa is not a cooperative abductee. Were taken aboard a craft and shown on a monitor, a television like monitor, her clone going to work in her place. And the point they made to her was, you can be replaced, and look, even your co-workers can't tell the difference. So we have some contradictory stories when it comes to the cloning procedure. Is it the new body for the resurrection, or is it a potential replacement? Well, the aliens have said both things. The second physical procedure that I wanted to touch on before we take our break is that of the implant. And I'm sure all of you here are familiar with reports from abductees who remember or claim to have had certain small devices inserted into their body in various places, right? Bud Hopkins has made, I think, brought this to light a number of years ago, and since then the reports are, are very numerous. Typically, all along, the reports have been these that an object is either inserted through the nasal passage into the front part of the brain or through the ear canal or very frequently, although not as often reported, very frequently the abduction reports that the eyeball is removed from the socket and the implant is placed behind the eye and the eye is replaced. So these are the reports that we knew of as typically um, implant reports, although occasionally into different parts of the body we've had also reports in, in other appendages. And, and frequently in the spine as well. Now, although there are many different effects and physical after effects from these procedures, various procedures performed on abductees, 
the common ones are not are almost irrelevant when it comes to the implants. And what are the most common physical effects reported? Punctures, bruises, burns, cuts, scratches, rashes, hair loss, eye problems, back problems, nausea, headaches, and for women especially gynecological irregularities. But of all of these, the implants are the one that should probably concern us the most. In Taken, one of the women is, a, is named Amy, who lives in Texas, and I learned from her experiences some very surprising material. Now again, nothing at face value, but what we learned is provocative, and it has been pro both in normal methods and also with regressive hypnosis. In 1992, in November, Amy consciously remembered this being taken from her home, and by the way, she lived in an apartment with her two young children across the street from the FEMA facility in Denton, Texas, which is one of the six center of, center of government FEMA facilities, a, a very large underground area, which in fact, within a two-year period, seems to have almost doubled its capacity. A mountain, a literal mountain of dirt, suddenly appeared a mile down the road with no explanation for where it came from, the array of antenna on the surface tripled, and so did the above-ground buildings, but not a word was ever said in the area about what was going on in the facility. Anyway, perhaps it's coincident, perhaps it isn't, but Amy lived across the street from this facility when she remembered aliens and human men in her apartment, taking her from there through a rock-cut passage into what she felt was an underground room. And in this room, it looked like what I've seen at NASA Mission Control in Houston, sort of. There was a large screen display at the far end of the room. There were several rows of desk-type areas with electronic or computer-like equipment along these, and a number of little gray aliens working at them, as well as a number of what appeared to be strictly human men in the room. And here's what the alien who talked with Amy told her. And I think this is a unique report. I'd love to hear if there's any others out there, so please let me know if you hear of them. The alien said to Amy, I want to apologize to you for what my people are doing to your people. We, there are some of us who do not like the abuse of your race by our people, and we're trying to counter it. We're trying to change it. And we are working in conjunction with a number of Earth representatives to try to fix this situation. Many of the people who work with us, she said, are professionals, ex-military, scientists, and so on. And we're trying to undo the damage that our race is doing to your race. And she explained, the alien uh, Annie felt was a female. The female alien explained to her that one of the things that the, she and the Earth representatives were doing was to take abductees who had been implanted by her own people and remove the implants from them because the implants were not a good thing. And she did proceed, as I have recounted in the book, to remove an implant from Amy's ear. And we'll, when I show at the end of everything, I'm going to show a little video that has some of the drawings and some of the photos and so on, and you will see these uh, Amy's drawings of what she recalled. And you will also, I, I will be telling you that an identical ear implant was removed from a 12-year-old girl by her parents in 
Europe uh, not too long after we had to report that Amy. No, at, before we had to report that Amy. And the same thing happened with that ear implant in, in the European case that happened in Amy's case. When the alien took it out of her ear and showed it to her, it was about this size. It was flesh-colored. It was thin and flexible, and it had tiny filaments of some sort coming around the edges. The alien showed it to her, and as Amy watched, the implant disintegrated. The same thing happened in the case in Europe. When the parents removed this from their child's ear, it disintegrated, but it looked just like this before it disintegrated. The alien then next removed an implant from the base of Amy's neck and showed her this one. And it was less than an inch long, very thin, metallic, and out of one end were some filaments of some sort, tiny wires. What Amy was told about these implants, and she was also, by the way, told that these were the older models, that there were newer model implants now being used on abductees, and they were being put in not through the nose, not through the eye, not through the ear, but through the area slightly below and behind the earlobe and that they were going into an area that we know as the reticular activating system, our reticular formation, our brain stem. And Amy was told that these implants were not what we have assumed that they were all along, are not what the aliens have told us they were all along. Most of the people who've had these implants have either been told or have assumed that they are monitoring and communication devices, right? like tagged animals, according to this alien, that's not what they are. They are control devices. And they can control everything depending upon how they are used. And I wanted to read to you in lay terms, because certainly I'm not a scientist, and I had to get a, a very simple definition and explanation so I could understand it. So I figured this, this is worth sharing with you about what goes on with the brain stem or the reticular formation. Are there any MDs here? Because they could probably give you a lot more you know, specific information about the brain stem area. So here's a quote from Nigel Calder's explanation about what goes on with the reticular formation of the brain stem. Quote, if the primary job of the brain is to enable its owner to respond effectively to events, the strongest claimant for mastery of this is not the root of the cerebral cortex at all, but the brain stem. The brain stem net is well placed to monitor all the nerves connecting brain and body. It knows what is going on better than any other single part of the brain. The brain stem net exerts its authority by sending out impulses which can either stimulate or inhibit nerve action throughout the body and the brain. It can override activity in the spinal cord. It now listen, this is important. It regulates the signals from the eyes, ears, and other sense organs. It regulates that and thereby provides an agency for selecting what is to be attended to from moment to moment. Okay? In fact, the brain stem controls the level of your wakefulness. It's responsible for you waking up. It's responsible for you getting sleepy. It's responsible for the comatose state when this person's in a coma. It's responsible for every level of the state of conscious perceptions that we have. It monitors and assesses all of our sensory input. 
it decides what we're going to pay mental attention to at any given moment, and it controls what we remember. Now you may have a better understanding of the many, many things of Ducky's report having happened to them in encounters, suddenly passing out, suddenly being paralyzed, and, and what they sense, what they perceive, what they don't perceive why some things that should be excruciatingly painful are not, etc., etc., etc. I think the implications of implant control taking over the processes of the brain stem are completely staggering. And I think it brings back down to a very physical, technological level many of the events and the um, implications and conclusions that Ducktees draw about what they see and what they perceive. Now I've had abductees tell me of situations in which control of their body is actually taken over. It's as if, as my son said when it happened to him, he was switched off and something else controlled his body and made him move and do and say things that he would not move and do and say. I've had another abductee tell me, yes, this happens. He said, it's, it's bad enough when they switch me off and use my body to do things I wouldn't do. He said, but the real punishment is when they leave me mentally aware of what I'm doing and I can't stop it. He said, that is punishment. All right, well, I think we probably need a break about now. When we come back from a short break, what, Sean, 15 minutes or 20 minutes, something like that? We will talk about the final point, the human activity and human involvement. This particular segment, then we're going to show you a video that has a lot of the illustrations, drawings, and photos of some of the things I'm talking about today, as well as some other material. And at the end of the slides of the, uh, the photos and drawings, there is a small excerpt of a video from the case of Angie, one of the women in Take It. And this is just a brief sample of some of the numerous flights of military craft over her remote Tennessee cattle ranch, where, by the way, she and her husband have had a number of cattle mutilations resulting in the loss of over $11,000 of cattle at the same time of the five Alabama uh, cattle mutilations that were occurring. All right, finally I said I wanted to talk about the, the human agency involvement that I mentioned at the beginning. And uh, there is quite a bit of evidence for the involvement of some of our own people with some sort of covert authorization in the subduction phenomenon. The evidence for this falls into two general categories. And the first category of evidence is what I call the externally confirmable evidence. And this includes such things as telephone interference, mail tampering, human agents taking photographs of abductees and of their homes, following abductees in cars and in helicopters, breaking into abductees' homes, taking artifacts and records, including medical records from medical facilities in some cases, and direct confrontation between agents in this group and abductees, in fact, kidnapping abductees for purposes of interrogation and intimidation. 
Now, such, such activities, you know, if you're familiar with this field, are commonly reported from many, many abductees. And, of course, my family has had all of this as well. In fact, the first two times we ever met with anyone in the UFO community to when we were beginning to try to find out what was going on with us, we were followed. We had driven 40 miles away, three towns away, to Dallas. The first time we met in a, a nice neighborhood in Plano with a group of uh, MUFON members, and we left at 12.30 at night to drive the 40 miles back home, and when we pulled out of the neighborhood, we were followed by a single person in a white and marked car. We were followed over two-thirds of the way back to our house. My husband did not tell me. He was driving, and I was sleeping, and he did not tell me that he observed we were being followed. Before my husband and I were married, he was in the service. He was in Army security work, and it was routine for our Army security agents to be spied upon by their own people. That's part of the process. And he, would, he knew what it was like. He was well aware of being followed and monitored, and he was very aware of this car following us. He tried to lose it. He did various maneuvers, and it stayed with us. He didn't tell me about this. He kept thinking maybe it was just coincidence. Two months later, we met for the second time with a group of UFO researchers. Um, we met in Dallas at a large hotel, and we stayed talking with the researcher until after 2 in the morning. We pulled out of the parking lot to drive home, and the same car followed us the same path. And this time, my husband told me what was going on, because now he knew it was not coincidence. So we have had every one of these events in our own experiences. In the cases of the eight women in Taken, for instance, seven of the eight women have reported the presence of other humans in their abduction experiences along with aliens. In six of these cases, the humans were in military uniforms, and five of the eight women have witnessed repeated helicopter and other military aircraft buzzing and harassing their homes as well as the phone, the mail, et cetera, et cetera, the photographing, and so on. In fact, I think it's interesting that one of the women um, who was having the house photographed happened at one point to be, had it happened more than once, but she and her husband were pulling out of their driveway, out of their garage, at, at one time when this person was photographing their house, and they chased the, this van. It was a white van. They chased this van and tried to catch it, but it, it did over 90 miles an hour eventually to lose them, but they did get the license plate number. And it was the case of Lisa. Lisa gave me the license plate number because she said that they had gotten friends in law enforcement in Alabama to try to run a check on the license plate number. Now, I have friends in law enforcement in other cases where there's been license plate uh, involvement. I have listened on the phone as the license plate number was checked, and it's a matter of moments, just very few minutes, to do this process. Lisa's friends in law enforcement in Alabama had tried to run a check on this license plate, and it took three days to get an answer back. And when the answer came back, it was this, tell her to leave it alone and not to pursue it. These are the good guys, but don't pursue it. I had it run through in the state of Arkansas, the police department in the town where I lived, and the answer came back, we don't have a record of it. So I had a third law enforcement friend in yet another state do a run on this and got an answer back that identified the tag as belonging to a van 
that was the property of an import warehouse company. We have photographs of the van and of the company, but we cannot find any information verifying what it is they import and warehouse. So three different accounts from three different checks on the same license plate number. Now that's in the externally confirmable body of evidence. There is a second body of reported data involving human agents and agencies. And in the second category, we have basically reports of human personnel working with alien entities, often in underground facilities, typically in a military or a scientific type environment. And I'll come back to this in just a moment. But the third type of underground facility reports that we get, and we get these in some numbers, involves what I refer to as the horror chamber of abduction data reporting. This underground facility report is where abductees report seeing human bodies, dead human bodies, being processed, much as chicken or beef is processed in a facility for purposes that we don't know. And the descriptions are all very similar and frankly very grisly. Some of the abductees report seeing dead, naked human bodies literally hanging on what they call meat hooks are stored in other fashion in these rooms. Some describe seeing dead bodies stacked, as one person said, like cordwood in the room. Many of these accounts also refer to a conveyor belt type area where human bodies and body parts are carried along the conveyor belt while human workers standing beside the conveyor belt dismember parts. One example that I can share with you in some detail is from an experience that Ted Rice had when he was living in Albuquerque, New Mexico in the mid-1980s. He consciously recalled being over, when he came to consciousness, he was already in a craft flying over a desert area. He has no idea how he was taken from his home. He recalled seeing the desert area, recalled flying into an above-ground compound where there were adobe-type buildings, small buildings, and then going into one of the buildings and down a tunnel or underground passage into a very large underground facility where there were both humans in military uniform and aliens. Ted reported seeing living humans being taken through a machine or a device that he perceived as, in effect, stripping their energy from them. And he said it was much like the effect of passing a light beam through a prism to break it down into its various components. He said apparently what he saw was this device stripping or absorbing the energy from the human who was still alive and breaking it down into various components that were somehow stored. And then the bodies were passed off into the conveyor belt room. Now this is a very gruesome and very grisly report. And of course, what I have to hold on to when I get these kinds of reports is the fact that there is virtual reality technology. So whether or not these facilities are real places, or if they're part of some virtual reality movie that is being shown repeatedly to abductees, I do not know. I pray for the latter to be the case, 
And until we have broken into one of these facilities and examined it and filmed for ourselves what's going on, I do not assume that they are real, but I do not rule this out either. After Ted had described what he had consciously remembered about this facility, it was a few weeks later when I heard from the researcher with whom I work most closely, Barbara Barthlick, about a report from one of her cases that she had worked with for a number of years. It's a woman in her 50s, a grandmother, whose initial exposure to this had happened at the age of 17 when a UFO landed on her family's property and left the typical scorched area of ground. It was about a 100-foot diameter circle of ground. And she says shortly thereafter, military personnel arrived at their farm, cordoned off the area, and removed the soil from this circle. But this was just one of the woman's experiences. Barbara was calling to tell me that this same woman had phoned her earlier that day, very agitated and very upset, and said, Barbara, I had something happen last night. I hope it was just a dream, but I don't feel like it was. Now remember, if you're always in an altered state when you have an encounter, and the only states we normally think of are conscious awake like we are now, are in a dream state. So very often abductors will say it felt like a dream or I was in a dreamlike state because we don't have other terms for these altered awarenesses that we have. Anyway, the woman said that she had recalled the night before being taken to an underground facility and being forced to stand alongside some conveyor belt type area where dead bodies were passing along and she had to dismember them. Now, Ted had already told me about seeing humans working doing this very thing, and he had described the kind of garments that they had on and some other details in the room, and I asked Barbara to call this woman back and ask her about some of these details without telling her, just ask her about this. And Barbara phoned me back and told me the woman had described exactly the same clothing and the same details. Same movie they were both shown? Maybe. Or maybe it was not a movie. We just don't know until we find a facility, if there is such a facility. Barbara has also very recently, in the past few months, interviewed a six-year-old girl. Her family is very prominent in the South. They are in the media business. They own a large, uh, well, I'm not, gonna, I don't, I'm not allowed to give too many details because they, as you will realize by now, some of these things are so uh, disturbing to the families that the last thing they want is any identification. But this six-year-old had told her parents about having been taken by beings that were not people. And this is a six-year-old, remember, who's not exposed to any of the material that we are. She said she had been flown to South America. Now, we don't know if it was literally South America that she was told she was taken to, or if in child's thinking, as we often do, it was the southern part of America. But that was what she said, that she had been flown by these beings that were not human to South America and taken into a building under the ground where she described seeing many dead bodies and she described the conveyor belt and she said that in fact she was placed on the conveyor belt and then a man came and jerked her off the conveyor belt and got very angry at the person who had put her on there and told him she was not supposed to be harmed. And this is without any hypnosis, without any exposure to these kinds of accounts 
or any other material about UFOs. The family has nothing to do with the UFO community. They knew about Barbara because I had been down to do an interview the year before for their media business. Another of Barbara's investigations with which I was involved, in fact, the initial contact was made through me and because of the location of this particular person, I put them in touch with Barbara and she continued the initial of uh, the primary investigation and I was just simply assisting her with it, concerned two men who shared a house. Uh, an older man who was 43 at the time was a very highly placed city official, so again, I'm not going to, at his very strict request, identify the area. The other man who shared the house with him was in his early 30s. And of course, they had separate bedrooms. And one morning, and this was, uh, the, by the way, people who had never had a UFO signing or UFO encounter or anything like that and didn't really know much about any of what we're dealing with here today. One morning at breakfast, both men were very excited and agitated as they met to have breakfast and told each other almost simultaneously the same dream they had had. And it was this, that they had been taken together to an underground facility where there were both aliens and human personnel, and they were told by the humans that this was a joint human-military disease research center. And in all they remembered consciously was having been given injections of some unknown sort. And they were very agitated. This was completely out of the blue for both of these men. So here, as I said earlier, the typical reports are either scientific installations or military installations, and these two men were told it was a scientific installation. Angie and Beth, uh, both women and Taken, have reported similar type facilities with military or scientific activities going on. And uh, my husband, in fact, who was kidnapped in November of 1988 by military personnel, was also taken to an underground facility where he saw a number of other people in a waiting room with him, uh, all in a very dazed, zombie-like state. They were guarded by regulation military guards. He was taken out of the room, down a hallway. He passed through an area where there were great, uh, a large area where there are many stored, stored boxes and crates, and he said some of them looked to contain dynamo-type or generator-type equipment. He said it was all strictly GI issue. It was a strictly human facility with linoleum floors and fluorescent lightings and doors with knobs, everything that's totally human, nothing like what he had seen aboard alien craft or an alien facility. And again, it was military personnel. He saw no aliens at all in this particular experience. In fact, he was taken into a small room where a man in a major's uniform was sitting behind the desk. The guard that took him in left him there and stood outside the door, but then shut the door, so my husband was alone with this major. The major proceeded to question him intensely about what the aliens had been doing with us and our family and what he knew about the alien agenda. My husband, his former military, was so completely outraged that even in his dazed state, he was so outraged at having been treated this way by his own people that he refused to say anything at all, and it reached a point where the major was making threats to our family. When he still refused to talk, he said something was applied to the back of his neck and he immediately passed out. He remembered nothing further until waking up back home the next morning, but he was still in a slightly drugged state 
where his vision was affected and his uh, equilibrium was affected, but it wore off after a little while when he woke up. This was my first exposure to any kind of involvement of humans to the point of abducting, kidnapping, interrogating, and making threats. And if it had not been for those threats, I would never have written the book into the French. I took them seriously. And I thought, if we are being threatened by our government, by anybody within our government, then I wanted the public to know and to watch us so that if something happened, at least others would know what had occurred. And that's why I wrote the book to begin with and, and can't public at all. Well, back to the two men who were taken to the facility where they were given the injections. They were deeply concerned about what this was all about, and having no previously remembered encounters of any sort, it took a while for them to find someone they could talk to to put them in touch with someone who might know, which led to the contact with me. We arranged for the older of the two men, the city official, to go out of state to go do regression work with Barbara to try to find out what else might have occurred and what might have been in those injections they were given. But before he was scheduled to make the trip, a couple of things occurred. First thing was that the younger man became ill. And so ill he had to be hospitalized and so ill that the hospital in the small town where he lived was not adequate and was moved to a larger city facility because they found what were apparently symptoms of pneumonia, serious pneumonia, but they could not identify the strain. It was not a known strain of pneumonia. The second thing that happened was that the man who was scheduled to go do regression work while his friend was in the hospital had another alien visit, this time in his bedroom. He wasn't taken anywhere. The alien entities told him not to pursue the investigation, not to talk about what had happened to him and his friend, that it was no one's business, and he was certainly not to go do regression work. And they said, if you do, we'll kill your friend, and he'll die with a membrane over his head, which really makes no sense. However, taking this threat to heart, the older man went to the hospital and told his friend, exactly what had happened and what had been said, and he said, they threatened your life. And the, the man in the hospital who was getting very, very sick by this point said, look, I may die anyway. They've told me I may die anyway. We've got to know what it was they did to us. They gave you the same injection they gave me. Please go do the regression one. And reluctantly, the older man finally decided he would agree with that and he would go do the regression work, which he did. And in the regression, he recalled a number of other incidents about this facility, including some of the scenes that we talked about earlier with the dead bodies. He returned from the out-of-state trip where he had done the regression and went back to the hospital. The man had, in the hospital had become so ill that his parents had been called in from out-of-state and were told that he probably would not survive, and they were preparing for this. Miraculously, however, in a very, very short time, the man suddenly made a quick turnaround and was on the road to full recovery. Absolutely amazing to all the doctors, but everybody was very grateful. And it reached such a point of recovery that they were, the doctors told his parents that if it continued at this rate within 24 hours, they could take him home to convalesce. And they took him off the life support equipment that he had been on and they said, but just to be safe, before we really you know, release him, let's just be, take one more precaution. And for the last night he's going to be here, 
we're going to put him in an oxygen tent. And they put the oxygen tent over the bed, and 40 minutes later, the man had an explosive heart attack and died with a membrane of the oxygen tent over his head. This is not the only threatened death that has been carried out in the research that we have done. And I could do an entire lecture just on the threats and what has been carried out, but that's perhaps for another time. By the way, the man who had died of the heart attack had no previous heart problem or heart history. He was healthy other than the pneumonia. And in the hospital, they found no signs of any problems with his heart before he had the heart attack. In my personal investigations, especially in the cases of the women that I report about and taken, I've dealt with several abductees, as I said, who've had military involvement in their experiences. And I think one of the most intriguing is that of Pat, who's the first woman whose case is discussed and taken. Pat lived with her younger brother and sister, her mother, a paralyzed stepfather, and her grandmother in a farm on 16 acres outside of Floyd's Knob, Indiana, in 1954. Pat was 12 years old. In the summer of 1954, before school started, so it was before Labor Day, a UFO, a craft, landed in the back of the property where the farmhouse was. And the house uh, was entered by a number of little gray aliens. This night, Pat was in the bedroom with her grandmother. They shared the bedroom. And the grandmother became very, very frightened, and that's when they beamed Jesus in, who said, it's okay, there wasn't any go ahead. The entire family was abducted, including the parents and the grandmother, and they went through a series of physical examinations, etc., etc., and were returned to the home. The next day, and this is 1954, the next day, two trucks carrying uniformed soldiers with arms arrived at the farm, uh, three smaller vehicles with the lead personnel, including doctors, came to the farm. They stationed the soldiers around the perimeter of the farm. They sequestered the family for five days. They only allowed the little boy outside under escort in order to feed the farm animals once a day. For five days, each member of the family was drugged and interrogated. And Pat remembers them telling her repeatedly that the event she was describing did not happen. Now, the night before when the aliens had had Pat, she had asked in her innocence, are you angels? And they said, yes, but not as you've been taught. And she kept insisting to the military and to the doctors who were examining her that the angels had come, and they kept saying, there was no one there, this did not happen, you did not see this. All of the surviving members of Pat's family recall this completely consciously, Pat has never had any regression work. And she asked me when I did this book to put the date and the place because she's hoping that there might still be someone from that area who saw the military arriving and who could verify the story that she and her family have been telling us that they have remembered all these years. 1954, one day after the abduction, apparently our military was able to monitor events well enough in 1954 to know that this craft had been at that area. This is 1995. 
certainly whatever monitoring and surveillance techniques they had in 54 have been well improved since then. Lisa, another of the women in Taken, has also had several abductions and interrogations by military personnel and she has undergone also not only interrogation but a variety of physical examinations. In one of them she recalled what were identified to her as FBI agents present as well. She's also been subjected to some very traumatic sexual scenarios with some of the human personnel. And she has had repeated instructions about certain things. Most commonly, she has been told exactly how she is to talk about the aliens with others. She has also been warned to keep quiet about certain things and she has specifically been told not to divulge information to me. Such a warning was also made very forcefully, as you'll read in the book if you happen to look at that, to Angie, the wife of the cattle rancher in Tennessee. By name, she was told not to talk to Carla Turner. Beth, who is uh, a, a woman in Taken who lives in Puerto Rico and whose uh, numerous events experiences have also been investigated by Jorge Martin has, in addition to the recurrent alien abductions, has a, at least two experiences in which she has been kidnapped by military personnel. In one of these, consciously recalled, she was flown in a, an alien-type craft by both alien and military personnel to a desert area where there was the above-ground compound, almost identical to what Ted Rice has described, and we'll have a drawing of that that she's made, and we'll run the video in a minute, where she again went through the above-ground facility into an underground area. She does not recall having a physical examination, but she does recall being in a room with many other people of the military and listening as she said two men in what looked like spacesuits were delivering a lecture of some sort. Angie, the one I talked about earlier who had been told not to talk to me, the wife of the rancher in Tennessee, has been taken both from her house in the daytime by military personnel, at night by military personnel, and off the road when she's driven into the largest town near her to do shopping by military personnel. She has been taken to two different military facilities. One is a known facility. The other is a very remote, very small, rural facility. And she's been taken there along with other women that she didn't know. Now, in the beginning of the experiences that Angie was having with the aliens, and she had these before the military became involved in this, she thought the aliens were very much her friends. There's a very tragic story about what they did impregnating her and, and she thinking they were giving her a gift. She and her husband had been trying for several years to have a child and finally the aliens in one of the encounters implanted her with a fetus and she thought it was their, their gift to her. And when they confirmed the pregnancy, they named the baby and told all of the relatives and were getting plants for the nursery. Angie doesn't know about this stuff at this time. She didn't know they always came back and get the fetus, which they did. Then when the military began showing up in these experiences, she was told by the aliens that they, the aliens, controlled the military personnel who were with them. But she was told a number of things. 
and not all of them were consistent. For instance, in one of these abductions, the one when she was with the other women, she was told by the medical personnel who were performing examinations on her and the other women that she was part of a genetics and cloning experiment. Another time when she was taken by military personnel into a van that had driven onto the farm and it had uh, some very strange electronic equipment inside that she doesn't recognize uh, the purpose for how they function, but she was interrogated for over an hour about a number of things. And while she was in this van being interrogated, she was told by the leader of the group that was interrogating her that she was part of a mind control project or operation that was run by, quote, high shelf military group working mainly in underground facilities. And I don't know what high shelf means, neither does Angie. When she was abducted with the three other women and taken to the rural remote facility, gynecological type exams were performed on the women. Also, implants that she was told by the military doctors were our implants put into her to monitor alien implants. This procedure was also performed. And then she and the women were taken as a group into a room where a military officer harshly and threateningly questioned them all about what aliens were involved in their experiences and what kind of events were occurring. Well, now that's in that second category of information where it's very, very hard to get observable, confirmable data to support these stories. But I will say, and I'm making this public every time I speak in public, that I have documents, military documents, with the names of some of the military personnel who have abducted and threatened Angie. And I have stashed these documents in several places, very safe places, because of the threats made to her. And if anything ever happens to her, they will be made public immediately. We're hoping we can at least give her a sense of some protection by doing this. <clears throat> Once, uh, I think this is sort of interesting. As I said, many abductees have phone tampering and monitoring and so on when they began talking about their experiences, and, and we also had this. And when I was doing the work with uh, the women in Taken, at one point I was on the phone talking to Angie. And I was in Arkansas, and Angie was in Tennessee. And we were not on cellular phones. Somebody's asked me that before, so I always try to mention this from regular phones. And Angie was talking about a piece of information that one of the aliens had given her during one of her encounters, because she asked where they came from. And they said that they came from an area that we would call the region of Cassiopeia. And Angie said, Carla, do you think that could be real, could be true? And I told her, quite honestly, Angie, I don't know. Uh, the aliens have over the years given about a jillion different places of origin, some real, some, you know, made up. I always joke about, you know, Captain Anthrax from the planet Banlon because they come up with so many different names for the places they come from. And I said, I don't know. We don't have any way to check. There's no way to verify. And at that point, there was a slight little electronic zip sound on the line. And a very, very human man with an attitude that I recognized as an attitude at least, commented and said, there's a lot of them out there and we know where they come from. And then a little bit and he was off the line. Now certainly, if the only purpose for telephone monitoring was to gather information, 
I could go into a number of other accounts involving the human agents and the involvement of, of different things in my own family's experiences, but I want to go ahead and try to wrap this up and get to the videotape, but I want to, to at least give you one more episode that occurred with my family. And this is in Into the Fringe, by the way, because that's our account of what went on during this period. My son, as I said, was a physics student at college, and he was engaged to a woman who was also a physics student. They both since gotten their masters, gotten married, and are producing some really nice children. But at this time, they were simply engaged, and my daughter-in-law came from a family that didn't have a lot of money, and the only way she could afford to go to college, even a state university, was through some sort of scholarship program. She was very smart, but... Um, money still hard to come by, so her means of paying for this was to enlist in the ROTC officers program. And they would pay for her college, and in return she would serve a certain amount of time as an officer. In their senior year, when these events had begun re uh, occurring consciously with us, my daughter-in-law had developed some medical conditions that, that necessitated her withdrawal from the program. But it's not easy to get out of the ROTC officers program. It takes a while. It takes a process and paperwork and time. And she hadn't gotten out at this point. But the seniors in the program had to make a, a duty assignment request upon approaching the graduation. So even though in, my, my, my daughter-in-law knew that there was a time coming when she would be out of the program, it hadn't happened yet, and she had to go ahead and make a duty assignment request. She chose the one that would have kept her, in case they didn't let her out, nearest to her doctors. And that happened to be a meteorological assignment. And she signed up for that. And it was a female ROTC sergeant that was in charge of the detachment there. And when she saw what my daughter-in-law Megan had written down on there, she freaked out. And she said, you can't do this. You don't want to be in the meteorological program. She said, don't you want to get into the R&D program? And this is a quote from the ROTC sergeant. She said, that way, you'll get to find out the truth about UFOs and aliens. You might even get to do tests and research on them. And this so frightened Megan that she did not reply. She simply left, in a, in a running leap, left the building and immediately came home very upset to tell us what had happened. And she kept saying, how did they know? How did they know? because we had not told anyone except on the phone to UFO researchers. She said, how did they know? We don't know how they knew. We, we do know how they could have known, but we don't know why they would make such a blatant statement from an Air Force officer, sergeant straight out to this poor woman and scare her the way that they did because then she realized there were no secrets that somebody was paying attention. Well, in closing, so we can get to the video, I'm going to summarize the important points I really hope you'll consider from what I've presented today. First, our own human authorities are seriously concerned about and involved with some aspect of this abduction agenda. And when humans are involved, surely there must be some trail of events and of evidence and of witnesses, which means that we have a potential to really get some hard facts because of the human involvement. There has to be a trail. It may take a heck of a lot of work and effort and cooperation from some in authority to find this, but it's potentially there and it should be pursued. Secondly, 
Much of the adoption agenda clearly has a physical focus that I hope will raise questions and doubts in our minds, as it does in yours, as it's done in mine, about many of the alien claims to be here on a primarily spiritual mission. As I have said before, and I hope you'll pardon my crudity, angels don't do rectal growth, but these beings do. The implications of both the implants and the reports of the cloning procedures to me are so potentially explosive that these allegations also must be vigorously, thoroughly investigated and pursued if we are really serious about finding out what is going on with the alien agenda. And if we get, can get past our wishes for what is going on and decide we're ready and mature enough to handle the truth, then these are the areas we better start looking into. And third, absolutely important, we need to recognize the deceptions that are employed to keep abductees and therefore the rest of the community from knowing about the actual activities and the entities involved in these procedures. To me, the controls that they exert and the deceptions that they use imply to me that there is something within us humans and something that we could be capable of doing that would upset their apple cart and they don't want us to know about it or be able to do it. You don't hide something unless you have something to hide. And you don't take control of someone unless they have the potential to upset your procedures. And my goal, of course, is to upset these procedures entirely. I'll tell you the good news. The good news is that in a number of cases in the last year or so, I have seen individuals who have been able to break free of the controls, at least to some degree, to upset the procedures to some degree, to resist the intrusions to some degree, and certainly to see through some of the illusions that have been presented to them and say, uh-uh, I know that's not real. It tells me that we are capable of penetrating this. We are capable of doing something that will stop it or change it at least and be able to, perhaps because we're developing new perceptions, be able to see these things coming and react properly. Now, the scientists tell us that any species that is put into a serious stress situation will develop new coping mechanisms, new mechanisms that they didn't need before when the stress wasn't there. And these may manifest in new intellectual abilities as well as in new physical abilities. And certainly, what we're seeing going on with the abduction agenda is a stress situation and it may be pushing us individually and therefore also as a species to develop and to have emerged within us new abilities to resist and to cope and to overcome for our species' survival. So that, I think, is the good news. We're seeing this happen now in individual cases. And the more it happens in the individual cases, perhaps the more it will catch with the rest of society. The morphic resonance theory, perhaps, may be at work here. If these encounters have been a part of a, a hidden part of our reality for a long time, like some researchers in this field believe, then I think that the recent explosion of contact reports, consciously remembered encounters, and people being able to come forward and share information like we're doing here today, and to resist in so many cases, is surely proof that things are not business as usual in the abduction game anymore. Something is very much on the changing on the transitional edge here, and I believe it's us doing the changing because we're having to. But until that is accomplished to some more competent level than we reach now, 
without an understanding of these screens and this virtual reality capability, we're going to be left with only alien-created illusions and scant, partial, confused, misleading memories to assess and act upon. And that will keep us from any useful, real response to the real situation. So far, as I said in the beginning, UFO research has given us no conclusive answers. But we do have at least these few important pieces of information upon which to build and from which to move. We know the abductions are real. We know the abduction agenda includes very physically oriented goals and procedures. We know that the abductors contradict themselves and give false information as well as information we have no way of verifying. We know they're capable of masterful illusions. We know that they always attempt and normally succeed in taking control of us during all the encounters. And we know that our government knows about this and is actively involved to the level of carrying out covert and clearly illegal actions against us because of it, whatever their reasons may be. No matter what the truth finally proves to be, and I pray with all of you we find that truth at some point, without it and without pursuing it and accomplishing a penetration of these masquerades, we're going to be just like little children playing in shadows. We're going to be ignorant, we're going to be uninformed and unempowered to confront properly and deal with the entities behind the charade. Now, thank you for your attention. I want to now run the video, and I will make some commentary on what you're going to see. And then it'll be question and answer period for anyone who has anything they'd like me to further pursue. The farm in Floyd South, Indiana, and that is the two younger brothers, uh, brother and sister, and the family members. This is where the craft landed in 1954, and the military arrived the next day and sequestered the family. Uh, again, Pat asked me to make as much of this public as I could so we could look for potential witnesses. So I wanted to show you the farm. This is the sewing machine that uh, uh, Pat was placed on and heard the sound of her. Soul, as she said, and in the room where the alien entity standing is the one she was taken into where the bodies were stored and she was shown those bodies for the resurrection. Um, only two of these women, by the way, are artists of any sort, so these drawings are for the most part fairly uh, unsophisticated. This is Polly's drawing of an alien type that's reported not as frequently as you might think, but in some cases we've got a number of reports of these furred, uh, furrowed, browed, or bulges, ridged areas over the heads of what otherwise would be typical gray aliens. So I wanted to show you at least a variation on the usual. Many people report, like this drawing of Lisa, seeing hooded entities along with the other typical alien sort. But so often we don't get to see their features. But I wanted to include this because Lisa was able in one instance to see some facial features within the hooded area. I have never been able to see facial features when I've seen this, this type of entity. This is Lisa's drawing of the bulbous-headed or dolphin-headed type entity. Again, some uh, crude drawing, but not the typical gray forehead area. It's as if it bulges over like a porpoise's head does, and uh, in company with other typical alien sorts, this is, is not an infrequent report. Now, a little gray in the hat. It looks sort of funny, but we have a number of reports, including Strieber's and my own experiences, where we've seen typical grays with a hat of some sort on. 
maybe they just, uh, I mean, I have no explanation, but I wanted, if any of you have seen this, to know you're not the only ones who have seen a hat on an alien. Now, this is Lisa's drawing of a ridge-nosed ridge uh, entity that Linda Howe has got a much better drawing of in her latest book. And in Lisa's case, this is with other entities, including the next one you're going to see, which is her very poor drawing of a reptoid-type creature with vertical slit eyes and the clawed fingers. And those two entities were together in a scenario where Lisa was raped. Uh, it has caused her a lot of trauma, to say the least. And um, she does not like the raping reptoids, as she calls them. I know you've heard of others, including Leah Haley and Pua, that have spoken out who have had similar events in their experiences. The triangle and circle insignia. Many of the insignia and symbols that abductees report aboard craft or on uniforms involve some variation on the triangle and the circle. The other typical one includes a serpent or winged snake type figure. Um, but this is probably more common. Some variety, we're going to see another one in just a little bit from a different person. Anita, in taken, her drawing of a tan, she said the tans kept trying to beam love thoughts into her and make her love them, and she once reached out and patted one of their faces and said, too bad it isn't real. Um, she, is, she is a family of abductees going back three generations, and she has a granddaughter living with her now who is also having abductions. This is the granddaughter's drawing of what she calls the mushroom men who come into her room at night. She said, however, that this one was about two feet tall, shorter than what we normally see. Maybe they size them down when they make, take those human fetuses and grow their little workers from them. Now, Beth was also, as I told you, taken to a southwestern American facility where there were the adobe buildings above ground, and this is her drawing of that facility, the above ground part. It's very, very similar to what Ted saw when he was taken to such an area, and she went through the door of one of these buildings, and she said they were rough and old-fashioned outside and inside. It was pure, high technology, taken down under, uh, underground through a tunnel passage, an elevator tunnel shaft, into this room where she said there were the two men in the quote-unquote spacesuit standing at the podium lecturing where she was with a number of other military officials, including uh, one that we've heard reports on, the red-headed man who seems to be involved in some of the interrogation. Jane had taken, was told, she's taken many photographs of UFOs, she was told this day, telepathically, clean your lens, get new batteries, we're going to be overhead for you to take a picture, and this is just one of the pictures that she has taken, and these have been witnessed with sightings by MUFON people in her area, and neighbors, and other relatives. Now you know about all the body marks. Uh, this is just one of the triangles uh, of punctures. We get numbers of triangles of various sorts on abductees' bodies over and over again. I have a permanent a triangle of three circles on my body. Often we've gotten these temporary marks that are either punctures, or scratches, or red areas. The scoop marks. Most people report not knowing how they got their healed scoop marks, but in three or four cases we've had fresh scoop marks, and before they heal, there's this dark, waxy substance that extrudes from them for a while before they heal. And this is a picture of one before the healing, and it's got this dark, waxy substance coming out of it. Jane also drew this, as she said, she had seen the light beings, and these were, uh, they look like long-haired entities sitting around a curved desk or, or, or table area. She couldn't see any facial features, and I include it because many other people have described down to the curved table area councils that they have been taken before uh, where they are given certain lectures. 
Uh, in this, Jane remembered seeing aliens working at some sort of uh, controls or equipment, hearing them read off a list of sites and locations in Texas and Louisiana, and then she heard the term, the word, activate, activate, activate. She has no idea what this means. This is all she remembers without hypnosis of her event. Her drawing of this is just a very fuzzy drawing, but I wanted you to note one thing. The little black box with a number of tubes or hoses coming out of it, she has has no clear memory of what was, was done with this box, but you're going to see an identical box in a drawing from one of the other women in just a little while. So I wanted you to see that you know, there are correlations. Now, Jane remembered consciously what she thought was being taken to a desert or a tan world where she saw this series of events she painted to try to explain what she saw consciously. A large black UFO flew into sight. She's on this desert world, which many other objectives have talked about. As she watched this UFO, or large craft, beam down an orb of some sort that had various strange designs on it, and she thought that was pretty amazing as she watched this. Um, and then this orb, and the paintings will continue, changed into a black floating sphere. She said it had two antenna on it, and it began coming so close to her where she sat on this mesa or this mountain area that she thought it was going to knock her over, and that was where her conscious memories ended. Under hypnosis, she was not on a tan desert world. She was in her bedroom, and this device had probes that did an implant into her ear, among other things. But it was the illusion of being on this desert world that we get reported of very frequently. It wasn't there. She was at home when all of this occurred. This is her drawing of the last thing she remembered consciously, this thing coming up that close to her. Okay. All right, this is Angie in Tennessee. You know about the scorch marks. She had remembered the night before seeing two aliens taking soil samples standing alongside a rectangular type device. And this rectangular scorch area remained without growth essentially for about a year and a half. Um, she did not realize that what she had seen the night before, here's her drawing of it, was anything more than a dream until she got up the next morning and found the rectangular scorched area precisely where she had remembered it in her so-called dream. And again, they've been taking soil samples for so many years, we've decided they've got to be the dumbest creatures in the universe that just can't learn anything. Um, this is, I wanted you to see how remote her, her Tennessee farm cattle ranch is, where that could have lost $11,000 worth of cattle to both mutilations that are classic, according to Linda Howe, and also cattle that are not mutilated, but veterinarian reports say they have died from unknown toxicology. Uh, at the same time of the Fife, Alabama uh, mutilations. And this is one of those cattle that they couldn't find the cause of death for, and they just had to write it as an unknown. Uh, the next picture is of a calf that was mutilated. And we don't know, I talked with Linda about this, we don't know if it was human agency trying to imitate an alien mutilation or if this was an alien mutilation that was somehow interrupted. They had cut the triangle piece of uh, skin, as they often do, but they had not removed it yet. The jaw had been stripped, but it was as if it were either done by humans imitating the alien um, mutilations or an interrupted one. We really just don't know in this particular case. I, I didn't understand that. Um, there was some blood, yes. This is the fetus that Angie recalled when they induced the, the miscarriage or abortion two months after they'd impregnated her, and she noticed that it was a, about three times larger than a fetus, a human fetus would have been at that point of development, and it had the black eye, 
lidless eyes. And this was the device they inserted vaginally that caused the uh, miscarriage to occur. I haven't seen this reported before, but I'm interested in any similar reports that, that you, any of you may have on this, about this kind of a, a device. These are just some of the typical puncture marks and, and um, body marks. These are on Angie uh, that concurred with certain recalled abduction. Her drawing of the fetal nursery. She was taken there five months after she had had the loss of the fetus, and she asked what had happened to her baby, and they told her its soul had been recycled and its physical body had been made good use of. Again, now you see the black box in the corner with the little tubes coming out of it, and this is Angie's drawing. Angie's an artist, by the way. She's an illustrator, so her drawings are pretty thorough. And the box is similar to exactly what, or is exactly what, uh, Jane had drawn from her very scant partial memories of being taken out by the aliens. She didn't know what the box was for. Angie, uh, I asked Angie to draw this because she said in one instance she had seen a gray with clothes on, which most often is not reported. So she drew from me this what she perceived to be this sort of grayish, metallic gray jumpsuit uh, with a cinched in or gathered waist on the particular gray that was wearing clothes when she saw it. And this one is a very bumpy-skinned, rough-skinned entity she saw, I think, only one time. It had the long, knobby fingers. And um, she didn't really remember about the feet, but she went ahead and put them on there just so you know, it would look like a complete drawing. She said it was a very rough-textured skin, not at all like a smooth, uh, typical gray skin. Human, humanoid-looking entities, or human-looking entities in several of these encounters have been reported, and this is Angie's drawing of two, one male and one female. The male in the background has a hood on and some kind of device on his chest as if he's measuring something, and the female escorted Angie aboard the craft where certain exams were performed. All right, you may not have heard much about the troll or dwarf figures, but in this instance when they came into Angie's home, it wasn't Angie they abducted, it was her husband, and he did remember this consciously. It scared him so much he really doesn't even talk about this stuff anymore. And he has a uh, former intelligence background. He really did shut down when he had to face this particular thing. Again, another symbol here with triangles and a version of the circle, in this case the crescent, that uh, Angie had observed on the belt of one of the entities aboard the craft. And we get ver variations on this triangle and circle business over and over again. And, of course, the triangle marks in the bodies lead us to, to think of it as basically their logo or their brand in some way. An unusual craft, I'm hoping for other reports that uh, may come in with this spiked craft. I have not seen this myself before, but it's one of the craft that was over the farm area where Angie lives. And the second craft we're going to see in just a minute has some very close similarities to the Gulf Breeze craft. It's got the bottom area, you see in the bottom view at the top and in the side view, that has um, a very close description to what the Gulf Breeze residents have reported in the bottom of the craft they see most commonly there. And I asked her to give me a drawing to, so I could estimate size on this craft, and here's her drawing. So she's standing down there below it so you can see a proportion of our, our, the ratio of her to the size of the craft to give you some idea of how large it was. My timing's not always great here between talking and showing these shots. So, okay, now here, now Angie was flown with three other women into this rural military installation, and this is what she reconstructed a map of the facility from what she saw flying in 
uh, a dirt road curving up at the top, three large buildings and smaller outbuildings, and two areas where various craft uh, aircraft were parked. She was taken into this building, and that's where she and the women were, had both physical exams and were interrogated by the military officer. We have not located where this facility is. It's very rural, but I know where the other facility is that she's been taken to, as I said, and I know the names of some of the people involved in her, her interrogation there. This is the craft in which they were flown. She said it was really strange. On one side, there was a regular like wing, and it had a U.S flag on it, insignia on it, and so if you saw it from that side, it would look like a winged craft, but on the other side was a flat area, and in the back of the plane were compartments like closet areas, and it, the women were placed each into one of these closets when they were taken there. Have you heard reports about the rotorless helicopters? Here is Angie's drawing of one that she saw in one of the military underground facilities that it looked like an upturned, upside-down helicopter without the blades, and we've gotten reports of these kinds of craft uh, over the years from a number of areas. And I almost want to say ignore this one. You'd have to see the pictures up close, but she was taking, trying to take photographs of some of the overflights of craft and above the farm, and she snapped these two pictures back-to-back, uh, -back, and in one of them, if you had, to, had them up close with a, an enlarger, you would see in one of them there is a UFO in the crossing of that main bar with one of the contrails, but it's not in the other picture. Amy's drawing of her first conscious sighting of UFOs in 1981 uh, by craft over the university housing area, uh, University of North Texas. She said she did have an abduction at this time. She was... Uh, it was a very confusing little abduction, but she's had stuff all of her life. As, as a child, she was taught different things at a veteran's court, like how to pass through solid objects, uh, telekinesis, affecting electrical equipment. She said in the last two years, they've begun now teaching her two young daughters the same things that they were teaching her. And, of course, she can't do them when she's alone, just when she's with them. One of the daughters drew this. This is the large ball of light that she has seen on a couple of occasions come into the house the child has. But more frequently than this large one, she has seen a very small ball of light, more like the probes we typically hear about. And it's one of the few cases, and we have others, but very few, where there seemed to be a tail or appendage or something coming off of the probe light. And as I said, both of these have been drawn by her daughter, who's had a number of, of alien encounters herself. And, in fact, the next drawing is a page of doodles and designs that this daughter had just made. Um, the mother sneaked away and made me a copy of, and you'll notice that the aliens have the vertical slit eyes and the triangle again and the circle. And this is, uh, like I said, a second grader's doodling, obviously expressing some of the things that she had seen or, or witnessed in, in her events. At one point, Amy, or early in her life, or adult life, had come to consciousness as she was floating out of the house, being floated out of the house. And she said it's the most amazing thing she had ever experienced up to that point, to wake up and you're in midair floating through the doorway and out the door. She has no memory of what happened when she was outside. This is the FEMA facility across the street from where Amy lived when the human representatives and the aliens who took her and removed the implant. This is where she lived. This is the facility in the same town. We lived in this town when my husband was also taken to an underground facility where there were stored equipment and military personnel, and we have just wondered if that was the same facility. Amy's conscious memory of that 
time when she was taken and the apology was given to her began with what she thought was a giant moon with little aliens floating in front of it. But that image or illusion soon disappeared and what she saw instead was there was no moon, she wasn't outside, there were no aliens floating. In fact, she was in her dining room and there were men and uh, non-human entities there who took her from her house. Uh, she thought they were normal men. She said they looked absolutely like any man you might see anywhere until at one point when she was in the underground facility, she got up close to one of the men and looked at him very carefully, and he had the vertical slit eye. So she looked at the other two men and noticed they were wearing contact lenses that made their eyes look normal. And when the man saw that she had noticed this, he sternly you know, told her, you will not remember this. You will not remember this. But she managed very consciously to remember quite a bit, as it turns out. This is that room, the underground room, into which she was taken where the apology was made. And you can see, if you've ever seen Mission Control Center, how similar this looks to that kind of a setup. Lots of the little gray entities working, several human-looking men present, and then, of course, the, the alien who was dealing with Amy. Now, this one, curiously enough, had what looked like a plastic mask over part of its face. And I've talked with another long-time researcher into the UFO report who has gathered, in fact, a number of cases he calls the plastic face cases. Several instances through the years where the aliens have seemed to have had a plastic mask, as you can see indicated here by Amy's drawing. Uh, she was... She said the other alien entities didn't have this on their face, but this particular one did have this masking of everything except the eyes. And it's her drawing of the procedures, a metallic pencil-shaped object that was intruded into her ear to remove the implant, which then exploded, or disintegrated, I'm sorry, uh, it just disintegrated into pieces after she was pulled out of her ear. Uh, I think there's a drawing of what it looked like before it disintegrated coming up very shortly. I don't remember the order exactly here. Okay, no, then this is her drawing of what happened after the ear implant was removed. The alien asked her to bend over on this desk area, and she used the same instrument to cut into the back of her neck. It was painless, absolutely both of them painless, and removed a small metallic thin rod, less than an inch long, that had filaments or tiny wires coming out of it and she was told it was removed from this part of her brain. That was the best explanation Amy could make from what the alien had told her. That top square box shows the flesh-colored shape of the ear implant before it was Integrated, so you can at least see what it looked like. She said it was flexible, it looked flesh-colored, it was almost transparent, and embedded in it were certain little tiny filaments of some sort. She didn't know if they were wires or what they were. This, uh, the top shows where the alien told her the new implants were now being placed below and slightly behind the ear. The bottom left drawing is the shape that looked like a little metallic tic-tac, and that's what she was told were the new implants that were being used to control the brainstem activity and that these were not for monitoring but for control. And the last thing she remembered was the alien coming up very close to her face, staring into her eyes, and she was trying very hard to remember what was on the big screen, but the alien's eyes kept her so concentrated that she could not recall 
I was not able to take in the information about what was on the large screen. She had a day, Amy had a daytime sighting of four UFOs over Dallas-Fort Worth Airport at noon one day when she went out for lunch. Saw four circular crafts coming. As they approached closer, they changed to look like four sort of airplanes. Then the airplanes lined up nose to tail, solid nose to tail, and then merged into a single disc that flew away. This is one of sort of a nonsense mark on one of the abductee's legs. We have, besides the punctures and bruises and claw marks, simple, simply designs that appear on the body after certain encounters. And we've yet to fathom anything about what these designs are. The final drawing, Amy trying to show how close some of the black helicopters have come down over where she was living uh, after, she, after she moved away from the FEMA's facility into a trailer park before she moved to another town in a house. And she said they came down this low over the house time after time after time, and the neighbors complained, and everybody saw them, so they were real copters. Right, this is an excerpt from Angie's tape. By the way, none of the nearest military or civilian airports say that this is any of their stuff. Ten minutes later, it's back. This is the third time now to circle this remote farm. C-135s very frequently. Also a number of different helicopter varieties, which you'll see a little bit uh, in just a moment. Fifteen minutes later, it's back again. The next day, they found a larger fruited, still living tree. They don't know if it was coincident to what was. Mm -hmm. It had not been storming at all. It had rained a couple of days before, but there was no storm that night. If you'll notice, smaller trees around this larger fruited tree are totally untouched. Except for two at the back of this small stand where it had the top sheared off, cleanly sheared off, but even small branches right next to where this was sheared off were untouched and undamaged. You can see now for comparison size of the tree. And we did get tree, you know, wood from the tree. It was alive when this happened.
if it was wind, it was very selective wind. There was no wind anywhere else that night. And you'll see a very small tree standing immediately beside it, totally untouched. As I said, other trees, the two tops sheared off of, of trees were totally untouched. No damage to even the, the limbs, the branches, the twigs. See how close that tree is? That's one of the sheared off tops, and if you could get up close, as we, we were able to do, the tiniest branches around it were unharmed, but it was sheared off the main trunk, and then a second one toward the back, also the same thing, the top sheared off, but no damage to the smaller. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Three days later. And this is just some a tiny bit of the activity that's been for two years now over Angie's property. Mm -hmm. About 45 miles. But they, we've checked, and they all deny both the civilian and the military that's farther away from there having any, but this is not theirs. There's no flight training pass, et cetera, over the property. And there were no flights over it until she got in contact with me, none at all. Yeah, you know, C-135. Yeah, and on the original, you can see some real sophisticated antenna array that doesn't show up when you project it like this. And then, of course, the helicopters that all of us know and love so much. By the way, in one of our helicopter overflights, we had three helicopters flying so close together that their rotor blades were intermeshed like egg beaters. And I've talked to helicopter pilots, and that doesn't happen. It did in this case. They were in a triangle formation. I, I'm not allowed to, to give more than the Tennessee location because of threats that have been made. Okay, that's just about it, folks. And thanks so much for being patient and sitting through this with me. Now, if you want to leave, please feel free to. If you want to ask questions, I'll do my best to, to give you an answer. Okay? Now, let's have a few questions. If you want to. Yes. Well, number two, I'm not going to tell you about. This is part of my protection. Um, I'm not going to tell you about because of what's happened. Our, 
she asked how I got the documents with the names for the military personnel in Angie's case, and I'm not going to discuss it. It is my only protection for Angie. They're going to stay totally undiscussed until such, such time as anything happened to her. As for knowing how this has been intergenerational in our family, I'll be happy to tell you. Uh, we know it goes back to my husband's grandmother in our case because two years before she died, the family knew she was getting in frail health and they got a video camera and asked her to record for the family's posterity some tales of her childhood in East Texas and they were very, very poor farmers. And in the course of talking about things that had happened in her family to her as a child, she described without any knowledge what was a classic abduction missing time scenario with the screen memories of, of the unusual, this very unusual animal that led her off into the swamp. She was missing for a couple of hours. The family searched everywhere, and then she said this real pretty lady appeared out of nowhere and led her back to the property. Um, when you study abduction accounts with the screen memories with children, you get very typical stories like this over and over. His, both his mother and father have had conscious UFO sightings. They have had uh, the father was with him when he was abducted as a young child and remembers the situation. His mother has had the balls of life, the missing time, the, the MIB experiences, men in black experiences, both before he was born and afterwards. And his, young, his son, when he was young, described the aliens coming into his room as well. So that's how we know about it in that case. Yes, I don't have a clue. Yes, FEMA is the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Uh, it would be easy for you to do some real quick homework to find out about FEMA. Um, from the descriptions of the interior facilities that a number of abductees reported correlated with official descriptions from the civilian, supposedly civilian facilities, we, we realize that there is a correlation in the kinds of facilities, furnishing, storage, etc. So we're making a surmise that it could have been a FEMA facility in a number of these cases. However, in other cases it doesn't seem to have been FEMA at all. I don't know what the involvement is beyond what the correlations between the descriptions we know of and the descriptions from abductees might give us. Yes, sir. Exactly. A question that I find very, very important. If they're working with the aliens, why in the heck do they have to abduct abductees and ask what the aliens are doing? My point may be, my point of thinking on this is, first off, that they are probably not working with the same aliens who are doing the abducting if they're working with any at all. Secondly, as at least in some cases the aliens have said when there were humans present that they are controlling those humans. And we know what can be done to us abductees so we don't know what controls might conceivably be used. Um, perhaps there's more than one non-human group at work here and one's trying to find out about the other. I don't know. Until they let me into the facilities and I can be debriefed, I can debrief them and look at the manuals. I'm not going to make anything other than guesses. Uh, let me get someone who's not asked a question. Yes. Uh, have you uh, 
you have any knowledge as far as uh, technology is uh, on aircraft, if you have any knowledge, a lot of a brief uh, that I can share and have included, but um, I know someone who's been uh, involved in the storm and was away carried out yeah. I understand that. Yes, in fact, at one, at one particular overflight, Angie had the radio on. And the radio began to make a really, really strange noise. She quickly grabbed an audio cassette tape and recorded this noise. And we took it to a radio sound engineers and had them to analyze it and see what kind of disturbance, interference, et cetera, could cause it. And they could not identify. It was not known to them from their work what the source of this interference. So it was, it was not common technology, at least in that particular case. Yes, I was five years old but didn't know what they were, uh, they would seem to have been very sporadic since I was five until the 1987 period where we had a year and a half of hell. And they were as frequent. One time, in fact, I, when I got involved with some other objectives in the, after we had you know, gotten through this initial phase of making contacts, there was one particular one who would call me for support. And he was having, he said, encounters a couple or two or three times a week for a while. And I didn't believe him. I, I just said, Fred, they just can't be doing that. I mean, they got—they can't just be having all these people dealing with just you. I mean, I just—I think you're making some of this stuff. And for 14 nights running, I was affected after that to show me, I guess, they can mess with you every night if they want to. Normally, however, after that year and a half period, the activity that we were aware of wanes, where we would have something maybe every seven or eight months. The most recent time I have consciously seen an NC in the house was in November. And it was one of November, and it was in it was one of the hooded entities, and it was on my husband's side of the bed, and I was not paralyzed. I was able to sit up and wake him up and make him turn the light on. I watched this thing for quite a while before I, you know, had the nerve to do anything. And when we turned the light on, it just pooped away. So that's it has been much less. In May of '92, an abduction was beginning. It was very familiar from what we had been through consciously before. And I had gotten past all the fear that I had that first few months. The fear is a really bad thing. They like it for one thing, so I don't want to give it to them. And secondly, it paralyzes your ability to respond. So I'd worked my way through being fearful, and I turned it to anger, which was much more effective. And I heard the, the onset of the abductions. There's a certain sound that had occurred a couple of other times when we had a conscious abduction. And I heard it again in the middle of the night, and I came up out of bed, and I said, you're really going to be sorry tonight. I'm kicking your butt. And that one stopped that night, but then they came back several months later. Now, however, since I got over the fear, they tend to either keep me totally out or let me see just very, very little because they know I guess I'm going to try to kick. I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Uh, so it's been less activity after that year and a half. So have you been taken to the 
No, I do not remember seeing any military facility. I'm only telling you what I remember. Uh -huh. I don't remember that. Yes. Have uh, any of the uh, SFDs uh, reported any total Well, yeah, yeah. First off, many, many, many abductees have been shown the scenes of destruction, including my daughter-in-law when she was uh, 12 years old, wake up in the middle of the night where they did a baby, basically a slideshow showing her these scenes of all sorts of destruction. That's just so typical. I, I mean, it's everywhere. You can find that anywhere. And what was the second part of the question? Have they told any abductees that they uh, are ancestors? They told me that. Yeah, in 1981, I had a 40-minute encounter. Of course, I was put in an altered state, but I didn't know what they were. I thought I was having a vision or a hallucination or whatever this thing was. I'd come home to cook dinner. This is an into the fringe, by the way. It's, it's almost a funny story, but it's not really. But I'd come home to go cook a pot roast, and I hate to cook. Or at the time, I really hated to cook. Now, I just don't do it. But I was going home to cook, and I'd left the neighbors and gone into the back of the five-acre farm where we lived. And walking toward the back of the house, I hit something that felt like electric force field. And it was not shot, it was not painful, it was just shocking. And, and I started moving real slow with the controls and hit hit. And everything I saw had a little glowy, shimmery color thing coming off of it, everything. And I looked up and under the big cedar trees behind our house were these four entities about my size. They looked like human outlines of shadows. You could see almost through them, no facial features. They were standing side by side. The one on the end had his arm out at me, and they mentally started talking to me, telling me that they loved me, they were my ancestors, how good it was to see me. I thought I was having a hallucination. Okay, I did not take these things literally real. I moved slowly towards them. They came and circled around me, and they started, their hands started like moving like this, about six or eight inches around my body, and I said, you know, what are you doing? And they said, we're just checking to make sure the knowledge we implanted, and I put the word it's pocket, in your pocket, is set to activate or go off at the right time. And I said, what are you talking about? They said, we put all of our ancestral knowledge in here, and you can tap into it. And I think I'm having hallucinations, so I don't take it seriously, and I started joking, and I said, well, surely one of my ancestors somewhere along the line was a good cook, can you tap that open? <laughs> and they said yes, and I said, well, basically, it's been fun talking. i got to go in and cook dinner. They came in the house with me. Everything was still under the glow. I was still under the controls. I went in the bathroom, washed my hands. The soap had the glow. The toilet had the glow. Everything had the glow. came back in the, in the kitchen, and I perceived, although they were identical, I perceived two as male, two as female. And the two males stood beside the stove. So, and directed me through every single step of cooking the process. <coughs> the two I perceived females stayed behind me, and I would try to turn to see what they were doing, but I couldn't turn. And at one point, they got up behind my neck, and they were making a buzzing, mumbling noise that was really irritating to me, and I asked them to, I could see, I said, what are they doing? I couldn't turn. And I said, oh, they're just giving me instructions. Don't pay any attention. You just keep cooking. And I remembered all the way through getting this pot roast onto the stove, and then there was a gap in my memory, and the next thing I remember is it's been 40 minutes since I walked into the back of my yard and saw them, and I'm sitting at the table, the pot roast is boiling away, there's no aliens, there's no glow, there's no anything. And my husband came home from work, and I said, you did not believe the vision I had today. And I told him about this weird vision thing. 
And 20 minutes or so later, my son came home, and I told him about it, and my husband noticed that I had already forgotten a number of details by the time 20 minutes had passed. And then did they go one step further and tell you or any other anti-vaccine who they did? No, not me. Yes. And how about the origin of the secret base? No, and if they did tell me, I wouldn't believe them. I'm telling you, they get so much alien lore that you can't check out. I mean, you remember back when they first started having contact with people in the 50s, they said, where, where are you from? Oh, we're from the moon, and we're from Mars, or from Venus. And then we started space exploration there, so it's just all of a sudden they're not from the moon environment. They're from Orion or Arcturus, somewhere we haven't got yet. It's always somewhere we haven't got yet. They, there's just too many stories, and I know they have lied in many, many cases, so I wouldn't believe them if they told me. I don't believe they were my ancestors, to Towards the end of and that is going to help them break the control, but I don't know of any you know, fail-safe way to do it. I've just heard the same story as you have. Um, we did make a trip back in 89 to Dulce when we had heard about all this stuff to see if we could find anything, you know, being intrepid explorers like we were. And we talked to the local population, the ones who would talk to us, and they laughed about it. They said there was nothing there. And we drove all the way around the Archuleta Mesa, and we never had anybody chase us or saw any weird craft or anything like that. Um, so I don't know. It's just one of those rumors. There's a, you want rumors? We got rumors. I'm real hesitant to get into numbers or percentages. One of the reasons is that for every person who talks, I have a feeling from what we have gleaned that there may be 50 or 100 who aren't. Okay? So I can't judge from just, I can't make a, a, a good judgment from the ones who've talked. I don't have a clue how many people may be involved. We know it clusters in family groups, we know it's transgenerational. The first thing you do when a new person comes to you that thinks they've had experiences is you go talk to the rest of the family, and nine times out of ten you're going to find other members who've had it. So you extrapolate the numbers. You know what the Roper poll has shown. You know what the other abductee researchers have shown. It would just be a guess, a basic guess. Yes, uh, when you use the word under the controls, were you um, suggesting an implant and you were talking about what she was talking no, about? No, I'm. The I felt like it was an external control, like I walked into a field that was, that once I hit this field, whatever control was exerted was being exerted. Uh, this has happened to other people as well. In fact, in, in the book I talk about a situation, and it's a friend, which I don't sell because I don't know the book. Um, talk about a situation where my son and fiance drove up to the farm because we had moved out after this point and they were living there. And they drove up to an area where this field seemed to come in the car and it passed basically between the passenger and the driver's seat and took control of my son. In fact, pushed him off and took control of him. Um, so I don't know, but I do know I was abducted in the mid-1970s in the daytime in my car off Interstate 20 
and I remember having something done to, that was inserted into my ear, but I thought they were putting in something, taking something out, or just examining it. I don't know. So I don't know. I've never had anything show up on x-ray. Now, my mother-in-law, on the other hand, who I said has had experiences before my husband was born and afterwards, uh, was having back problems about three years ago, and they were talking surgery, and we, we said, before you do surgery, you might want to check the chiropractor out, you know, it's a little less dramatic, and finally convinced to go to a chiropractor, and when they first get a patient, they do a head-to-toe x-ray. And when we, I went back with her for the x-ray analysis, and when we came in, uh, the doctor said, Miss Turner, you didn't tell me you had brain surgery. And Miss Turner said, I haven't had brain surgery. And he said, oh, yes, you have. And she said, oh, no, I haven't. And he showed her on the x-ray a healed incision into the area over the, what we call the third eye in the forehead. On another case, uh, Beth in the book, uh, the one from Puerto Rico, when her family was abducted in 1978, she suffered a number of physical symptoms, including the rash, the hair loss, the nausea, and eye problems. And she was like 28 years old, and the eye problems got so bad she had had surgery. And when she went in to have surgery, the doctor said, you didn't tell me you'd already had eye surgery, and of course she hadn't. Uh, my husband just had a root canal a month and a half ago. When he went in to do the x-rays for the root canal, the dentist came out and said, I want to do those x-rays again. Something's really weird here, and I don't understand it. And he did the second set and got the same thing. One of the teeth, and the teeth are another part. We could talk a whole day about abductees and teeth. But this one was one of the back molars. He said apparently it had been sawn cleanly through and then somehow fused back together, and the saw line was still all the way through the tooth. And he had never seen that before. Didn't understand how that had happened. So, yeah, there's sometimes a we just don't remember certain things. That doesn't mean we don't have the physical effect of this having had to happen. Yeah. Are you or Yes. Yes. I have tried. Now we can, in my husband's case, get the X-ray. He wanted to know if we had tried to get medical records documenting this. Yeah, that we can get. There's no problem. Um, the X-rays from my mother-in-law's chiropractor, no problem. But when I had, I thought I had established a relationship with my doctor when I moved, I got a new doctor when I moved to Arkansas, and I wanted one I could talk to about this to record and document the physical symptoms. And at one point in um, one November in 92, I had waked up, as many abductees do, I'm one of those that wakes up at 3 in the morning every morning, and I get up and go to the bathroom and then I go back to bed. And I'd got up at 3 in the morning, gone to the bathroom, everything's fine, went back to bed, and I woke up at 7 in the morning and went to the bathroom and almost, you know, launched off the toilet because there was something excruciatingly painful happening. And when I looked, there was a 3-inch slice in the genital region as if somebody had taken a razor blade and sliced up a flap of skin. And I went to the doctor two and a half weeks later. I was scheduled for a gynecological exam. I remembered nothing happening between 3 and 7, but apparently something happened. And I got up in the stirrups for my yearly gynecological exam, and she said, we would already talked about the alien stuff, and she was very open to it. She'd had family members who had had sightings, and she was real interested. She said, anything happened lately? And I said, yeah, you know, on the second, I woke up and had this, this slice area. And she said, wow, it's still, I can still see the scar very clearly. 
And she, I said, would you put it in my medical record? Would you please document it? She said, of course. She got a nurse in there to, to witness it. She drew guide diagrams of what where the scar area was, put it on the notes, which is all the notes of my yearly exam. Last December, I demanded to be given a set of my medical records because I was fixing to change doctors, and they refused. It's state law that we can have our records upon request, and they absolutely refused to give it to me. I had to go to the Arkansas State Medical Board and press charges to get my file released. When they finally did release my file, that page was missing. So I went back to the board and said they only gave me an incomplete file. I want that page. And it took two weeks to get another page sent to me, and it wasn't the original page, and there was no drawing and no reference to it whatsoever. We've had medical records disappear out of clinics. Yeah, Sean. Yeah. Do you know, have you heard of any abductees who have been involved in training programs? Uh, training for what? Um, I don't know. Maybe any, whatever task, and or learning any type of weapon. Sure, okay. sure. A number of abductees have reported being taken and shown how to operate certain equipment aboard craft, even how to pilot the craft. Um, They've been trained in a number of other ways, not, not about weaponry perhaps, but one of the most weird stories as far as training goes involves one of these underground facilities in human and alien people. Three women, a, a nurse, a teacher, and a therapist who were friends from Oklahoma were all making a trip together to Arizona uh, several years back. This is one of Barbara's cases. And they were suddenly compelled for no good reason to get off the interstate and take an obscure little road out in the middle of nowhere. And when they did, they came to a really little weird gas station grocery store little thing. And they went inside. One of them had to go to the bathroom. And uh, the other two were trying to find something to eat. But it was really weird. There were shelves. There might be a can here and a can there. But it wasn't really stocked like a store. And the woman was a very long time in the bathroom. When she finally came out, like 30 minutes later, they got in the car to leave and they couldn't talk. I mean, they couldn't talk. They could just burble. And this went on for about an hour. And then when they finally were able to talk again, they couldn't make sense when they talked. Like one of them wanted to say, I wondered what happened to us. And what she would say was something like, you know, your foot is blue. It just took for a, a while before they got their verbal skills back. They knew something had happened. One of them had already had abduction experiences, so when they got back from the trip in Arizona, uh, one of them went to Barbara and had regression work. Uh, what came out of that was so extraordinary that they made plans for the other two to come. They kept the information separately, and all three women went through regressions eventually. One of the women, all, all the women remembered being taken out a door from this little quote-unquote store into a, a tunnel entrance into an underground facility. They all described initially the same thing. From that point on, the story changed. One of the women, after getting to that point, screamed for the rest of the, of the, of the regression. Screamed. That's all she'd do. They had to bring her out. The second woman remembered being taken to a, a room, an exam room, put on a table and fighting, very physically fighting against or against them holding her down before she was sedated and doesn't know what kind of exam she had. The third woman remembered going into the same facility, watching as the other two women were led away while she herself walked over to sort of like a dressing room area, changed into her uniform, went to a computer console and said, I punched in my coat and went to work. Yeah. Have you heard of these tiny little 
Well, I'm not surprised. I just haven't heard of them. I, you know, I, maybe I ought to do my homework on more of these electronic things. And I'm getting more towards educating myself on it. But you have to realize this is fairly new material for me to be dealing with. And there are some people here who've had human contacts who have done some of their homework on some of the technology around. So yeah, it's being pursued by a number of people. Was well, our time about up? Well, we got a few more. We got okay. Okay, yes, sir. Well, please don't, let me stop you there. Please don't be anxious and please don't be afraid. The abductors like that and they use that energy. The first thing any abductee needs to do is get rid of the fear and turn it around to something that's outward rather than inward. The fear is first off something they like and secondly it's paralyzing to the person involved. So may I just say that and then let you go ahead. divide and conquer is a really good tactic for keeping people confused. Now, whether it's our, our people doing it or the aliens doing it, I don't know. But as I've watched what seems to be the um, pre preparation program, the media, etc., the attention about the alien activity that's seeping out through the advertisements and the sitcoms and so on, they seem to be putting out more of a, of a placating message that the aliens are okay, that it's all right, that they're there, but they're not threatening. So it would be weird for them to turn around on the other hand and try to fake bad aliens. I've heard some researchers who say anytime an abductee reports having a negative experience with an alien, it wasn't really an alien, it was a government agent. I call that the G-men and lizard suits theory, and I don't buy it. I think that these activities are traumatic, and I think that the abductors are basically using us to harvest material from us. And whether that's a negative thing to you, that's something you have to decide. To me, it is. It may be perfectly legitimate for them. I mean, the cows that we farm probably don't think of us as malevolent because they don't think a lot. But if they started thinking or they developed the ability to think, they might think we were just that awful. But all we're doing is eating them, you know? I don't know. I don't buy that it is a, that the negative alien information is mind control instigated completely to give aliens a bad name. No. No. Couldn't there be an energy that stops in our unconscious and materialize some of our fears? Well, I'd, yes, there could be. There could be. I, I tend to think from what the evidence we've seen is, is that it's technological rather than metaphysical. Could it be both? Yeah, could be anything. Why don't we ever consider that? 
Well, people. Well, I think certainly whatever resistance might prove to be the most effective will come out of our interior strength. Yes, and I do think that's a real possibility to pursue. Uh, yes. They didn't. They didn't. Oh, we've got a lot of doppelganger reports, is what I call them, where there is apparently a copy of the person active doing something at point A while a real person is at point B verifiably. So this has even happened with my husband. I mean, this is not insanity. My husband was in, I said, Army Security. And one, at one part of his assignment, he was in Berlin. He was on base working in the room with other people in this, you know, in his duty. Well, at the same time, totally across Berlin, he was going in his home. His family saw him at home when his co-workers knew he was on stage. And this is just one instance. There's many times we've had double of abductees show up where we knew where one was at the time we verified that, and yet we have verifiable reports of, of a copy of that person seeming to be that person in an entirely different place. No one ever identified No. No. He remembered being at work. They verified he was there. You don't walk off of a security assignment and go strolling home. He was there. But he was also, or somebody just like him, was also a host. Came in, <coughs> did, did weird things. Came in, walked through the door. His wife came out of the bedroom. She was married before me and said, what are you doing home? totally ignored her, walked into the bathroom, shut the door, stayed for a amount of time, came out, walked out of the house, and left. And when he really came home, she said, what the heck was that? Well, they did know Yeah, well, yeah. But she thought it was him. She thought it was him. Yes, sir? Two questions. One is, how do you approach the number of I've been asked this many times, and I've tried to say that there was anything I could say was absolutely and even this is not a commonality. I can think of a couple of exceptions, but for the most part, the only thing I've noticed that's a commonality is extremely good, tender heart, tender, compassionate, and I can for the most part high intelligence, for the most part creative, not always, but for the most part. But the only common thread I found, except for maybe the exceptions I come on one hand, are they don't adjust those. They don't abduct jerks for the most part. Okay. The man, this gentleman asked an important question. It'll be the last one I think we have time for. He said, if they can make bodies, grow bodies, clone bodies, or everything with such effectiveness, why would they need? our bodies, like in these processes. Well, remember I said, I'm not sure these plants exist. They could be virtual reality, and they could be showing us these movies to manipulate our thinking in certain ways, or for fear in certain ways, so it could just be a movie. If, in fact, they do exist, however, perhaps 
as in Ted's case, where they, where we've done some more work that you know we talk about in the book that I didn't go into today. His theory on this is that periodically abductees may be cloned more than once because what was it? What he picked up from the process when he was going through this is that, yes, they can grow physical bodies, no doubt about it. But the body that has not had the soul energy in it is like bread without yeast or soda without fizz. It's just not as good. And that's his thing. Well, you know what I mean. It's a metaphor. Don't get so technical on me. physically real places. 